you know this because this was a high point in my life up there with like getting married and having children. Um, but I was once in an elevator with, with Nick Cannon. And uh, when I got out of the elevator, I reached my floor before they, or, you know, Nick and his, his body man uh, reached their floor. I got out and my first thought was, why did I ask Nick Cannon to sign my chest? Uh, that was awkward for both of us, you know? Uh, no, uh, the first thing I thought was, you know, Carlos Gracie could probably be considered the Nick Cannon of his era. And what I mean by that is, he had 21 kids by seven different women. Elio, uh, he had seven kids with two different women, uh, but all while married to a third woman. And what was going on here? Why, why so many children with these different women? They were breeding fighters. What's up, everybody? Thanks for coming back to the Pohada Podcast. As usual, if you dig the show, check it out on social media at the Pohada Podcast and at Pohada Photography. Maybe even share it with a friend. This is a show where we talk about jujitsu with jujitsu people, very often black belts this time around. It's another take two episode with Tom Hicks, who you might remember from episode 60 of the podcast, The History of Jiu-Jitsu. He asked to come back on and continue where we left off. Of course, I screwed it up the first time, but alas, here we are. Tom is a brown belt and a true academic, so he's compiled a nice timeline of events for us. One note, he does have a slip of the tongue and subs in the word taquiera or taparia, but we did record around dinner time. Without further ado, more of the history of jiu-jitsu with Tom Hicks. I was like a visiting professor when I first moved back here, so this felt almost like writing like for a class or something. So like, normally if you repeat something, it'll be better, you know what I mean? Like. And that'll probably be the case now. It'll be smoother because I've done it once and I hadn't even like read it through before, right? But usually you'd be doing it for like a new class. So like that's the only thing that might be weird is like I'm actually repeating like like I'm sure the same jokes will occur to me or like, right? you know what I mean? Or if I'm asking the same questions I asked you last time. But I mean, do we just play it like, hey, like we're doing it all over again? Exactly. Those two things were my thoughts that I said to Wendy after I realized I, I goofed it and it didn't record or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. I said, he's such an academic, he's probably going to be like, nice, okay, so that was a good practice run, and we'll do it, I can clean it up the next time, and I said, the other advantage is, I'm kind of a moron, so it's all new information to me anyway, so I say we just jump right in. Yeah, totally. Let, totally. Let's start with wrapping up where the uh, the first History of Jiu-Jitsu podcast summarized very briefly and where we ended with yeah. that other one. So the first podcast that we did and we can reference the episode number perhaps or whatever it'd yeah. be great to have people go yeah. back and listen to it we'll have Polly pull it up yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> there you go he's not here and uh you know clearly we had john grills and we had ishmael bentley and they had a lot of insight uh but we were really focused on uh kind of how jigoro kano uh and what he did with judo then was from carlos and helio gracie uh, really rebranded in essence, ultimately though, laying the foundation for the development of a distinct ground fighting art. So it very much was focused on that first generation of Carlos and, and Elio. Um, and so what I really would hope to do would be to kind of pick up from there and be able to talk about how did we go from that, you know, this idea of jujitsu is just emerging as distinct from judo to actually being transformed over time into what we now know and love 
which is very different, right? And how did that happen? And who are the individuals that, that, that made that happen? So we covered the emergence. Yeah. And now we're on the proliferation, but also growth, maybe. Well, as we're going to talk about, I mean, mm -hmm. it really is also like a transformation um, because what the Gracie brothers were doing, and I'm not just talking about like at a technical level, but also kind of like the culture, the teaching method, all those things, right? Um, that changed a lot uh, before it ultimately was disseminated here in America. But that dissemination is really important as well. Uh, so that's what I think is kind of what we weren't able to get to. And it's, it's a lot of history. So there's no way in, you know, whatever that first podcast was, 90 minutes or whatever, that we could cover all that. But that's a great place to start to reference back. Um, Especially when you consider the bickering. <laughs> too, too many chefs in the kitchen, probably, you know. It was a good time, but. It was awesome. It was awesome. Um, you know, and I think the thing about um, history, you know, when we talk about that first generation of the Gracies, we're largely talking about a story that took place in the 1920s and 30s. And 100 years ago, it might seem like a long time. Uh, but when you think about the concept of historical distance, it's really not. And historical distance is this idea uh, that a certain passage of, you know, a passage of a certain amount of time has to occur to be uh, a detached observer, to be able to comment on something, right? There was actually a philosopher named Van Humboldt, and he said, the historical truth is like the clouds which take shape for the eye only at a distance. And I think if we use that simile, when we talk about in jujitsu discussing its history, most people still have their head in the clouds, meaning that these individuals, they're just too close to the material, both in terms of time and also proximity. Um, I think Brazilian jiu-jitsu is really unique as a historical topic because we're largely talking about the history of one family, the Gracie family. And it's really hard to have an honest conversation about this history while the sons of Carlos and Elio are still alive and active in the art. So just as an example, Horian uh, and Carlinhos, these are two of the most important people ever in the entire history uh, of the art. And they're still not only around, they're still actively working, doing what made them so important in the history of the art, right? And so we're telling the story of their fathers, right? Carlos and Elio. And it's not easy to acknowledge uncomfortable truths about your own parents. Um, so I, I want to acknowledge that. That's a big ask, right? And I think it's one of the reasons that the original kind of Horian marketing story or origin myth or whatever you want to say has just remained kind of unchallenged. Uh, I think these are pretty awkward things to talk about because it's so recent and a lot of the people uh, in the story are still actively involved in, in doing what they do in jujitsu. Um, the truth is, though, that when we talk about that first generation, Carlos and Elio, uh, we're talking about some unusual people doing some pretty unusual things. Uh, that's not a bad thing. Like, I think being unique and an unusual person is probably like uh, a requirement if you're going to want to have a big impact on the world. And if you think about this incredible art that they cultivated, uh, how it's affected our lives, uh, I mean, it's amazing, right? So you, you have to be kind of an unusual person to do something like that. So I don't ever want anyone to think that I'm in any way anti-Gracie. You know, like I know we talked a lot, probably too much, about like a Mount Rushmore of uh, jujitsu. I mean, in my book, if there were six heads on that mountain, five of them would have the last name Gracie, right? So, I mean, in no way am I anti-Gracie or anything like that. 
But if you're going to tell the whole story, the full story, and really understand it in its larger historical context, uh, we got to acknowledge that the Gracie brothers, uh, Carlos and Elio, they were kind of strange. And that's by the standards in their time, certainly by the standards now. Um, so why do I feel so confident saying something like that? You know, uh, uh, strange is not a clinical term. I'm not trying to diagnose anybody, but... Uh, <laughs> But okay, so you know this because this was a high point in my life up there with like getting married and having children. Um, but I was once in an elevator with with Nick Cannon. And uh, when I got out of the elevator, I reached my floor before they did, or, you know, Nick and his, his body man uh, reached their floor. I got out and my first thought was, why did I ask Nick Cannon to sign my chest? Uh, that was awkward for both of us, you know? Uh, no, uh, the first thing I thought was, you know, Carlos Gracie could probably be considered the Nick Cannon of his era. And what I mean by that is he had 21 kids by seven different women. Elio, uh, he had seven kids with two different women, uh, but all while married to a third woman. And what was going on here? Why, why so many children with these different women? They were breeding fighters, right? You know, and they had this huge country house. I think it would be fair to call it a compound. Uh, and they created this giant family fight club where they kind of pitted all of these, you know, male heirs against each other to determine like who would be the family champion and who would protect the family name and carry the shield and take on all comers. You know, while they're doing this, everyone's eating the special diet, uh, that's based on combining foods or not combining foods based on their pH levels. You've got this belief in like mysticism and magic powers of certain letters and everyone has an R name because that confers power to them. Uh, they had beliefs like you shouldn't have sex with women unless you're attempting to procreate, not for religious reasons, but because it's like somehow sapped your life power from you. The um, main driving force behind having 60 kids because <laughs> I'm not going to not have sex, right? So I guess we're going to have another kid. Well, Yow. you know, if, if it were based on like a, you know, you think of like Catholicism or something, but that's mm -hmm. not what was going mm -hmm. on here. It was more like physical health concerns. Um, a, a lot of interesting uh, Gracie history has come out in the pages of Playboy, which is interesting because both uh, Elio was featured and interviewed and then Orion, uh, Orion years later was. And I remember in uh, reading Elio's interview, he talked about that he's never loved a woman because he thinks that that's like a type of weakness and he's without weakness. Uh, you know, at a, at a larger scale level, like political level, the Gracies were heavily involved in Brazil's right-wing fascist and authoritarian political movements of the 30s, 40s, and then later again in the 60s. Um, and all of this is occurring uh, through multiple generations of aggressive marketing of their own version of their own history, you know, denying their roots in judo, embellishing the nature of their martial lineage, uh, arguing within the family over who is responsible or who should be given credit for different aspects of the development of the art, intentionally leaving out uh, certain essential individuals because they're not Gracies. You know, so we talked in the first podcast about Jacinto Ferro or Donato Pirios dos Hayes, these, these really important teachers that they ended up kind of rewriting history and just calling those two individuals Maeda, essentially, uh, even though they didn't seem to have trained directly with Maeda, or at least we don't have direct evidence of that. So I'm not saying all of this just for the sake of bringing up controversy or scandal, right? Um, but I think it's important, actually, to establish that the Gracie brothers had a pretty unusual approach to many things, right? Because their approach to teaching jujitsu 
and the culture that surrounds the teaching of jujitsu was also quite unique, and it was very different uh, than what we experience in jujitsu academies today. Um, so if you think like, all right, we're talking about like the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, like what was it like to be at the Gracie Academy? What was going on when it was, you know, Carlos and then Elio kind of running things? Um, everything was private lessons. There weren't any group classes. So that most basic part that makes jujitsu jujitsu and what we know and love about it, right? That didn't exist. It was all private classes. The focus was almost exclusively on self-defense against an untrained opponent. So think how much time we devote to thinking about like jujitsu versus jujitsu, right? Or if you went in an MMA school thinking about fighting other skilled fighters, that's not what was going on here. Um, the people that you would find in that original academy, they were almost to a person all super high income individuals, right? Because the Gracies actively needed to look for high income individuals that could afford private lessons. And they also often looked for individuals that had political power or had some ins for them that, that could be of benefit, right? Uh, there was really just this emphasis on this is for a normal person, often a, a wealthy normal person, being able to defeat a bigger, stronger opponent. Um, Elio was actually on the record saying that he didn't really want to train people over a certain weight. You would have been completely out of luck, Browse. Um, because he felt that large, powerful men, they didn't need jujitsu. Jujitsu wasn't really for them. You know, it was for the weaker individual. And then that's how we got in this whole myth of like, oh, Elio was this weak, sickly guy, which he actually was a champion swimmer, right? Mm -hmm. um, it was a very defensive fighting philosophy. Conserve your energy, stay safe, outlast your opponent. There was very little live rolling. I mean, when most people who are into jujitsu think of jujitsu, that's what they think about, right? They think about the rolling. They weren't doing that. Uh, these were private lessons, just you and your instructor. There was live rolling that went on at the academy, but it was typically like at the end of the day, some of the Gracie family members and maybe some of the other senior instructors would get together and have some live rounds and do live training and focus more on jujitsu versus jujitsu. Um, but in the regular, you know, like students that would come in, they weren't doing any of that really. Uh, everything was structured lessons. There was like this original 36 lesson uh, kind of uh, curriculum rather. And they would stick to that. It was sort of a formal, rigid culture. There was this emphasis on hiding jujitsu, uh, like, hey, uh, this isn't uh, to, to share. These are like secrets. This is what gives us an advantage. And that was true not just outside of the school, like not sharing it with non-students, but even inside the school. Sometimes there was this idea of like, well, we don't want to show them everything. We've got to maintain even like, you know, an advantage over our own students. Um, we'll talk about him later, but there was this guy, Richard Bresler. And he was the first true consistent student of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu here in America, right, in the late 70s. And he tells a story in his book about uh, taking a, a, a class and then Elio noticing something. Elio was over visiting, right? He was visiting Horian. And so he took Bresler aside and showed him some details, right? And Bresler was so excited, like, oh my gosh, I'm learning from the grandmaster here. So he immediately, of course, like any of us would, shared those details with his fellow students. Well, Elio saw that and they chewed him out. He like took him on the side and through the translations uh, through, through Hori and he was like, listen, those were details for you. Those weren't for you sharing with other people. If I show you something, keep it to yourself. I mean, that is like the opposite of what we think of as like contemporary jujitsu culture, right? Well, and it's also something I attach to like the modern day McDojo, you know, He's got three or four different belts on. He knows all these secrets, and he's got these compliant students yeah. for the demonstration. Yeah. So thank goodness that kind of went by the wayside because it doesn't associate well anymore. 
I think when you read about it, they're really, I mean, I think that's an astute comment. Like, I think there are some aspects of the original Gracie Jiu-Jitsu taught in the academy in private lessons that did seem to have some of the trappings of like traditional martial arts, which is really interesting, you know? And just for comparison's sake, if you think about what is jujitsu like now, like what is it that we love so much about it? I mean, if you were going to describe it, I mean, obviously group classes are the norm, right? And that's the foundation for the whole culture. The focus is largely on jujitsu versus jujitsu. Or again, if you're an MMA school, maybe it'd be, you know, just trained MMA fighter against trained MMA fighter. Um, there's considerable variability as to how much emphasis is put on self-defense. Like obviously if you go to a Hoist Gracie affiliate, there's going to be a lot more emphasis there. And if you go to, you know, Mendez brothers, there's probably no emphasis on that at all. Um, but you know, clearly almost everywhere now is, has a pretty good emphasis on rolling and on like fighting against other people who know jujitsu. The gym tends to be kind of a melting pot of all different types of people and backgrounds, which is something I think we, we love about it. Um, but you know, certainly live rolling is huge, right? I mean, that is the thing that most people are most excited about. That's what we think about. I mean, we just say rolling sometimes when we talk about doing jujitsu, right? Because that's such an emphasis. The idea of like private lessons that are structured into 36 separate parts and there's no live rolling at all. I mean, I think that's just so different mm -hmm. than the way it is now, yeah. right? And then beyond the rule sets and the techniques and the strategies, the culture of modern jujitsu. So I know from your background that you did some, uh, like me, at, at some point you did some mm -hmm. Aikido, right? Yep. Um, I, I had done other traditional Korean martial arts and then I ended up after I blew my knee out the first time or my first knee, I, uh, I did Aikido as sort of rehab, right? So you know what it's like to be in a traditional martial art. If you were gonna talk to people in a traditional martial art and say, well, jujitsu is really different, like the culture is really different. Like, I mean, what sort of things would you maybe note to them about like, well, what is different about jujitsu culture versus like Aikido or Taekwondo or kind of traditional martial arts? Yeah, the uh, the, the 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 bowing and the the gatekeeping between you and the instructor and yeah. then, you know, the master on the wall, oh sensei on the wall, you know, the very strict hierarchy yeah. is kind of the the big thing versus walking into like M theory right now and just being like, What's up, Ish? <laughs> you know, it's not sir. Yeah. You know, it's just, just yeah. hey, what's going on, brother? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just like that idea of, you know, a relaxed culture, right? Yeah. It's kind of a, an informal vibe. Uh, like you point out, there's not a lot of traditional, you know, rituals. Um, there's some nerds like me from traditional martial arts background that still bow when they mm -hmm. come in and out or get mm -hmm. in and off the mat. But in general, there's very little of that, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, there's a more, a more blatant example would just be cross-training from gym to gym and, yeah. and sharing ideas when you come back and when you go to the other gym. Like, you know, that would have been absurd yeah. at the time yeah. now now it, it's a constant thing oh what'd you pick up from so and so absolutely and and there's almost like that picking up something there's almost like an obsession with new techniques yes. whether it be from other places or from instagram or whatever people are always so excited about geeking out over some new sweep or you know new version of the barambolo or whatever uh that's a big part of the culture um that emphasis just on making your training partners better so that you will then get better and that sort of openness you're describing um, I mean, even some of the stuff like, you know, fancy elaborate geese or flamboyant like rash guards and spats, joking, you know, with your instructor, like you were suggesting, where it's like this very lighthearted interaction, you know, just kind of fun, you know, teasing each other, you know, music's playing while we roll. Uh, it's just, it's, it's just a much more relaxed vibe. And then you get into the stuff like, 
why is there so much surf culture or surfer culture stuff in jujitsu? I mean, it seems odd. Like we live here in the Midwest. We're nowhere near an ocean. And yet, you know, yeah, we're all doing the shaka symbols <laughs> in our photos. You know, we're always listening to reggae. Uh, yeah. We're wearing board shorts and rash guards and flip flops. Uh, you know, unlike most martial arts and probably more like surfing, there's always a certain percentage of people in any school that are probably training while high. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, it's going to vary tremendously based on your instructor, your affiliation, mm -hmm. but that would be unheard of in other more traditional For martial sure. arts, right? Certainly not openly. Yeah. Yeah. It, are rash guards a surf thing? Oh, for so sure. That yeah. style of shirt or whatever. Yeah. So like when your chest is on the surfboard, so you don't get like, you know, yeah. like a rash or your okay. tornado. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Because being called that, it made sense in a grappling sense. I guess I never even questioned it. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, other stuff outside of surf culture is just kind of weird. Like, what's up with, like, acai after training? Yeah, you yeah. know, like, we have a group of right. guys at our gym that go out and get acai every, I think it's Saturday after mm -hmm. training, or maybe it's mm -hmm. Friday night. Some... But, like, why that? That's very specific. Or certain terms, like, crianche, like, what is that? Like, when we talk about people who switch gyms or are considered, like, you know, traitors or not loyal mm -hmm. to their instructor or whatever, crianche. There's just all this stuff that actually has explanations if you know the history of jujitsu. But it's not there if you buy into like the the Horian origin myth, right? Where it's like Elio is a sickly young boy, watched Carlos from the side of the mat and magically learned the skills of jujitsu and then invented leverage. I mean, you know, <laughs> we're not going to find any explanations for these invented things. leverage. Hold on, let's pause. Is there an explanation for Os? Hmm, that's a really good one. Uh, I don't know what the origin there is, like why that is a term. That that's the only answer I've ever heard to that. That we use, yeah, yeah. You know, I tried to look down the path of how did we get the slap bump to. Yeah. And I never got a great explanation for that. That one actually seems like it actually originated in California and then spread outward and back to Brazil. Sure. Um, but, you know, all this stuff is like... Culture. Yeah, exactly. Culture. It's a big old melting pot. Unlike the historical facts and the dates and names and fights, uh, you know, some of these cultural aspects are harder to, to sniff out, right. like what was the origin. So the ones where we can find a definitive origin are pretty exciting. Like mm -hmm. when I finally found the uh, the interview with, with Carlson Gracie, where he actually explained that he was the one that came up with the term Crianche, I was like, okay, so that's pretty definitive. Huh. Um, but a lot of this stuff, like the slap bump, it's like no one can say for sure. Like, why do we do that? Yeah, like, it's yeah. universally done and no one can explain yeah. why or when or where. It's, yeah. Or at least again, if, culture. Welcome to it. If, if it's out there, I haven't found it yet. Sure. Yeah. Sure. But um, so, you know, the art and culture that we know as modern jujitsu is largely due to the decisions, actions, and teachings of a small group of people that really don't have a large presence in that marketing story or origin myth that was told to us by Horian and ultimately spread around the world. Um, the most noticeable, uh, the most notable rather of these people would be Carlson Gracie. And we're going to talk a lot about him um, and why he should have a much bigger um, you know, reputation and should get a lot more credit for the art that we actually know today. Um, there are other very important figures like Hulls or Hollis Gracie uh, and Horian himself. Uh, who has really never taken full credit for the incredible impact that he had on the ultimate dissemination of the art. So although not nearly as well known as Carlos and Elio, these individuals actually deserve massive credit for developing and then disseminating the art and culture of BJJ as we know it today. Um, and unfortunately, I, I think some of these ideas are getting lost. You know, some of these people's roles, it's been not acknowledged for so long that it's like, you know, we've all 
just kind of taken this this origin story whole cloth uh, and not dove deeper. And I think that's really what's needed. Well, and I mean, any cursory study of any chunk of history, hmm. okay, I studied this country from this time to this time because there was a war, let's say. Yeah. It's kind of how we study history. Sure. Think of the thousands of details, political stuff, cultural stuff, you know, people's lives that are just completely lost. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, whether it's a deliberate thing or not, or just like no one noted it, yeah, stuff's getting lost. Stuff's getting lost, you know. And somebody's winning the battle of how the story's told too. Someone's dictating the narrative. Yeah, so yeah. Good to record stuff. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think like Carlson Gracie would really be, uh, you know, kind of at the center of of this story of like the true story of how things went from that original version of Gracie Jiu Jitsu to what we now know. So Carlson was born in 1932. He was the firstborn son of, of Carlos Gracie and his first wife, Carmen. Um, there's some debate. Where did Carlos, or who did Carlos, uh, Carlson rather, I'm sorry, learn from? Um, most likely it was from his father, Carlos, as well as from his uncle, Elio, and some other family members. Uh, there's some debate, like, to what extent did he learn from his father versus from his uncle? But, you know, it seems like certainly, you know, he was receiving knowledge from all of those individuals. Um, Carlson emerged as a top fighter among the ranks of his brothers and cousins by the 1950s. Uh, Carlson was leading the Gracie fighting team and was essentially recognized as the family champion. So we've kind of talked about this concept of like how the Gracies always had like mm -hmm. one guy that was sort of the family champion that would take on all comers and defend the name and everything. Um, importantly, Carlson was the only force keeping Gracie jiu-jitsu at all relevant during the dark days of the 60s and 70s. And I think we touched on this a little in the last podcast, but judo became uh, an Olympic sport in 1964, and it was quite popular in Brazil, right? Pro wrestling and catch wrestling were on TV, and they were quite popular. So it was taking up a lot of the oxygen, and nobody really seemed to give a shit about jiu-jitsu uh, during this like two-decade span. So... Uh, Carlos during this period is getting older and he's becoming much more interested in like mysticism and the diet. Uh, and Elio is older and he's still running the Gracie Academy, but he's really unable to remain the family champion just because of age, essentially. Um, he basically retired from high profile fights after he fought Kimura in 51. Um, so Carlson was really, really able to kind of keep the lights on, you know, uh, he kept jujitsu relevant. He brought money into the family you know, there's that famous quote from him where he says they'd all be selling bananas if not for him. Um, and there's probably some truth to that. He became the post-Elio uh, era family champion. He fought a series of Valley Tudo fights against the best available competitors. He ultimately went on to be the most successful Gracie fighter ever uh, in the 50s and 60s. And he followed that up by being the most successful Gracie coach ever, you know, to this day in the 70s and 80s. Uh, his fighters dominated sport jiu-jitsu and Valley Tudo matches, Valley Tudo being no holds bar, so like essentially like the precursor to, to MMA, um, for two decades. Uh, so how did this epicenter of jiu-jitsu development and evolution shift from Uncle Elio over to young Carlson? Uh, and it really was, uh, it had a name, and the name was Valdemar Santana. So Valdemar Santana was a student at the Gracie Academy. He was trained by Elio. And he came to Rio as a young man. He was an Afro-Brazilian guy. Uh, he started training at the Academy with the Gracies uh, around 1951. He also apparently was working there as a custodian. So he kind of was doing that work to, to make ends meet and then also, you know, getting instruction there. 
He was like 22 when he started there. Um, by 1952, he's a member of the small elite fight team along with Carlson, uh, and he's representing the academy out in matches, right? Challenge matches, sanctioned matches. Um, but then Santana is expelled from the Gracie Academy in 1955. And there's a lot of debate, actually, why. It's not clear. It's another murky part of history. Um, some people say it was because he took a professional fight, but Elio didn't want him to, didn't think he was ready, something like that. Um, the, another story is that as the janitor of the academy, that he accidentally flooded the whole academy uh, and that they were really upset about that. Uh, regardless, he gets booted, right? There's no uh, disagreement about that. And Valdemar Santana ends up training at a rival jiu-jitsu school. So then he starts this kind of, I don't know who started it, I shouldn't say that, but he engages in like a snarky back and forth with Elio uh, in the papers of, of Rio de Janeiro. So there's these quotes from both of them kind of going back and forth. Oh, this guy, you know, he's a traitor. He left our school. No, this guy's a bad teacher, you know. But eventually he, ch he challenges Elio to a match. And he says, hey, Elio can even pick the, the format for the fight, right? But you're going to have to defend the Gracie name. So Elio's 42 years old. He's not a young man, right? Valdemar's 26. He's in his athletic prime. He's a big muscled up dude. He, he outweighs Elio by approximately 20 pounds. Um, and what does Elio say when, when he says, how do you want to fight? He says, let's go no gi, valet tudo. No, I'm sorry, in the gi, valet yeah. tudo, but no time limit. The guy is an absolute savage. Elio Gracie, 42 years old. He's going to take this guy on. And instead of being like, oh, let's do sport jujitsu. He says, no, no, Valley Tudo, no holds barred. And we're not going to set any kind of time limit. So, I mean, you got to admire the guy's courage. Yeah. If nothing else, they're, these are pride people. This oh. is a pride culture, yeah. the family lineage, the family champion, the whole thing. Yeah. How could he not set those rules? It's incredible. Yeah. So, uh, as maybe you might expect, you know, the 26 year old, uh, ends up dominating, uh, 42-year-old Elio Gracie. Uh, the fight goes on incredibly long, over three hours. It's at like the three-hour and 10-minute mark. Uh, I believe it was that uh, Voldemort slammed Elio and then got up and soccer kicked him in the head, knocked him out, right? So this was a decisive win, and Santana was an instant celebrity. And he opened his own academy. He had success as a fighter and a coach. So he went on to good things. In contrast, uh, the other martial arts schools used this uh, against Elio and the Gracie Academy, and it kind of seemed to, to hurt their reputation. So who's going to avenge Elio's loss against Santana? 18-year-old Carlson Gracie, right? So this is really where he kind of steps into his own as the family champion. So the initial match between Carlson and Santana was actually a sport jiu-jitsu match, and this was in October of 55. It was about five months after Santana defeated Elio. And you might say, like, well, why would they do a sport jiu-jitsu match to avenge a Valley Tudo fight? But it seems like that was the only thing they could actually get sanctioned. Um, there's a history all the way through the 1900s in Brazil that Valley Tudo would sometimes be sanctioned by, like, local governing bodies, like fight commissions or local governments, and sometimes it wouldn't be. And it seems like it was kind of this back-and-forth uh, cyclic thing where like there'd be a really gory match like you know John McCain would have called the human mm -hmm. cockfighting mm -hmm. and they'd say okay we're not doing more Valley Tudo we're not going to sanction this anymore uh, but then the you know the public would eventually clamor for it so much that the sanctioning bodies would give in and they'd sanction another Valley Tudo match and then they'd outlaw it again it just goes back and forth so what they could get sanctioned was a sport jiu-jitsu match uh, Carlson was 18 years old Valdemar 26 
He outweighed Carlson by maybe six pounds. This first match ended in a draw. But later in 56, they fight again, and now they were able to get Valley Tudo rules uh, sanctioned for the rematch. And this time, Carlson dominates Santana. Repeated takedowns, beautiful uchimadas, vicious ground and pound, which was actually kind of a departure for the way that the Gracies typically fought. Uh, and Santana's manager ends up throwing the towel in in the fourth round. So this is the start of Carlson really proving himself to be the most badass Gracie of, of them all, right? Um, advances in technology, a lot of these fights could be televised or shown in movie theaters. So as a result, Carlson actually becomes quite famous in Brazil. He was considered the greatest fighter of most of the 50s and 60s. Um, he ended up rematching with Santana. They fought a total of six times. Carl, uh, Carlson won two of these and four of them were draws. Um, interesting, just like a side note, but Elio and Santana remained enemies. So this kind of speaks to their personality differences. Like uh, Elio could just never forgive him. He was a creanche, you know, et cetera. But for Carlson, he had this history of making friends with his opponents. And so he was friends with Santana, right? But then it's just like a, a funny little tidbit, but... Uh, in 1960, uh, Elio and Santana, they went on a Brazilian TV reality show that was called uh, Night of the Handshake. And this was like a show <laughs> where they would take people that have like public beef with each other oh, and they would come on to squash the beef yeah. like, in front of a camera, right? right and right. have a handshake, right? Yeah. The Night of the Handshake. So they did this. Uh, but then like three months later, Santana had a rare Valley Tudo loss. And apparently Elio sent him just a super dickish like telegram <laughs> saying like, Hey, you got knocked out bitch or, you know, yeah, something yeah, right, I'm paraphrasing. Right. You got owned. Yeah, yeah. 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 Something to that effect. So, you know, uh, it turned out they did not actually have their, their special magical handshake. Um, I, it was just for the cameras, uh, in the Gracie origin myth as told by, you know, Horian, you really can't erase Santana because it was too high profile. I mean, these were really high profile, the, the fight with Elio and then, uh, all these, you know, rematches with Carlson. So instead, he's kind of made out to be this this villain in the story, like this traitor. Um, but I think when you really research it, Santana seems pretty awesome. And and the fact that he had a friendship with Carlson, I mean, I think kind of speaks to the idea that this was not a bad person. Right. You know, it was just kind of framed that way. Yeah. So Carlson goes on to be the greatest fighter of his generation. Uh, he was like, do you remember us talking about like George Gracie or Gio Amore? Mm -hmm. um, you know, in the first generation, these were the guys actually that would just take on all comers. You know, they didn't quibble over rule sets or anything. They would just fight anybody anytime. And that's kind of what Carlson Gracie was like. Um, he preferred to fight Nogi in contrast to, to Carlos Anilio. And that's often, you know, something that's noted as uh, something he kind of introduced. He had a more aggressive style that incorporated more ground and pound. Um, and he was willing to fight the absolute best fighters uh, of his era, which is kind of a knock oftentimes on Elio and even uh, even Hickson, the idea that, well, did they really fight the absolute best competition available? Uh, and there's no debate here. Carlson did. Um, he fought Ivan Gomez. is like a Valley Tudo legend. He fought Euclides Pereira, who is a, a Luter Livre fighter and the only person that ever actually defeated Carlson in kind of a controversial uh, decision that was, you know, oh, they were fighting in uh, Pereira's hometown. You know, there's this stuff out there. Um, but he's a good guy to look up, actually. There's there's video of Pereira. Uh, he goes and he trains with a bunch of modern MMA fighters, like in the UFC. I think this was like in the early 2000s or something. But these guys are like blown away 
by his knowledge and skill set, even though he's an old man then, they're like, who is this guy? You know, I mean, he was just amazing. He was fighting before their fighting was even a thing. Yeah. Well, how could he know all these things? Yeah, yeah. Before they called it MMA, right? Right, right. Um, So, yeah, so Carlson, he fought 19 Valley Tudo fights. He won 18 of them. Uh, He had countless unsanctioned fights and challenge matches. He had a lot of sport jujitsu fights. He just was a super dominant fighter. Um, and he also, I think, ultimately was like a rebel in a time of, of, of forced conformity. Uh, so not to go too deep in Brazilian history writ large, but like 1964, the Brazilian military took over Brazil in a coup. And the idea was that they were going to, like every you know right-wing coup, they're going to prevent communism from taking over, which doesn't seem sure. like was actually a, a realistic danger. The best way to take something over is to tell people that someone else is going to take over. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Oh, they're Marxists or they're communists. Yeah, somebody's or coming. Yeah. Uh, so then there was a military dictatorship that lasted from 1964 to 1985. Uh, and this was a pretty dark time in Brazil. There was a lot of heavy handed tactics, censorship, even death squads. Um, kind of mirroring this, the Gracie family uh, was also organized in a fairly rigid fashion at this time under Elio. Um, they had this long history of alignment with right-wing totalitarian politics going back to the Varga era in the 30s and 40s. I think I showed you the last time I saw you this this photo of like Elio in the uniform uh, of, of that political movement. It's, mm-hmm. it's pretty striking. Uh, the, the Gracies have been training all the military commanders, so they had all of these connections. Um, and so, you know, in this context, it's like they're in this really like conformist kind of political atmosphere and you're running your school in this very conforming kind of rigid way. You know, oh, we're doing these 36 self-defense lessons and Elio would like monitor Carlson when he was teaching there to make sure he didn't, you know, diverge from that in any way. Like, hey, you're not teaching secret stuff, right? You're just teaching the 36 lessons. So, you know, someone had to break away from this rigid system. Somebody had to be kind of like the rebel. And that was Carlson. So in 1964, uh, he leaves the Gracie Academy and he opens up his own gym. This was the Clube Carlson Gracie de Jiu-Jitsu on uh, Rua Figueroa de Magalhães. And hold on, say all that again. Okay. Your so it was Carlson Gracie Club, right? No, no, say the real version. <laughs> the Clube Carlson Gracie de Jiu-Jitsu on Rua Figueroa de Magalhães. Very good. It's a decent accent. Yeah, not too bad. As far as anybody here knows. Yeah, there you go. Right. Uh, I'm sure actual uh, Brazilians are listening to this, being like, "No, that was oh, terrible. God, that was yeah. butchered. That was Minnesotan Portuguese." <laughs> Sometimes it's just referred to as Figueroa de Magalhães Academy because those are the streets that it was on. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, it wasn't just Carlson there. It was also. Uh, Holes there as well. So that's why sometimes it's referred to that to kind of talk about that school and both of those teachers, right? Originally actually partnered with Ivan Gomez, his former opponent. It didn't last long and ultimately Carlson ran the school. Um, The move doesn't seem like it was motivated by money. Uh, We'll get into it more, but like Carlson often didn't even charge people for lessons. Like he was not a good businessman. So it seemed like he was mainly motivated by a desire to change the approach to teaching and training jujitsu. Like he wanted to do it a different way. Uh, Right away, he moved to a group class model. So no more of this private lessons. Now it's going to be group classes. Um, Karate and judo were already being taught in Brazil in group class models. So this wasn't like, you know, completely new concept. Uh, Oswaldo Fada and George Gracie had already done some development of group class concepts. Um, But this was still an enormous shift for Gracie Jiu-Jitsu and brings it so much closer to what we know today, right? Just that one move. In doing so, he reduced the prices of training to make it 
at the time they actually I've seen like uh, old advertisements where they claimed that it was the least expensive jujitsu available, you know, in, in the Rio area. Uh, so it was widely accessible. He's out there, uh, Carlson's out there now actively recruiting students based not on their net worth, right? He's not looking for rich guys to pay for private lessons. He's looking for students with physical attributes. He wants big, strong, athletic, tough people, right? He was absolutely obsessed with competition. Um, he was heavily involved in cockfighting. And I don't know a ton about cockfighting, but from what, what, from what I have learned, it, it seems like it's very focused on like finding the most aggressive, strongest roosters, right? And so I think that's like kind of a, a bit of a, a symbol there. Like uh, Carlson actually referred to his fighters as his roosters. And he had this idea, like, what if we took the best athletes, the toughest, strongest guys, and we gave them the best training? What could we create? You know, he was obsessed with competition. Uh, John McCain might have been onto something. Maybe, yeah, yeah. yeah it was human cockfighting. Maybe he yeah. knew the knew the history a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it's hilarious. Like I'm, I'm sure he knew nothing about that. Of course, but, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, and you know there have been these comments that other family members would make at the time that oh Carlson's winning with his team because he just has these you know these super athletes and he's teaching them fake jujitsu or whatever watered down jujitsu. There was nothing fake or watered down about the jujitsu that that Carlson Gracie was teaching. He just thought that, you know, like any sport, I mean, yeah, of course the, the teaching and the knowledge matters, but so do the inherent gifts that you bring to the table, you know, your size, your speed. I mean, think about like the NFL, right? Mm -hmm. What is the combine? We're just measuring these physical traits mm -hmm. and we're thinking like, well, what is the raw material that we have to work with here, right? And this was really counter to the whole Gracie, you know, kind of slogan of like, oh, it's for the little guy, the weak guy. It doesn't matter if you know jujitsu, none of that other stuff, those attributes even matter, right? Um, yeah, so he opened up his school in Copacabana. And this is important because Copacabana is actually the home to two of the best surf breaks in Rio de Janeiro. And so when he's out there and he's now recruiting these affordable group classes and offering them, uh, who is he recruiting? He's recruiting from surfers, right? He's looking for these athletic and often aggressive types. And you know that's a part of surf, surf culture as well. Uh, these are also individuals who are probably more rebellious types, so you can kind of get what the vibe was like over at that school, perhaps. Um, and that really, you know, like in some ways, like Carlson is kind of single-handedly responsible for this merging of surfer culture and jujitsu culture that really produced the culture that we now know and love today. And again, the stuff we referenced, right? The the shaka hand symbol, the board shorts and rash guards and the playing the music in the background and, you know, probably smoking some weed if you're a surfer in Brazil and, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, you know, the easygoing, relaxed interactions with the instructors. That's the kind of relationship that Carlson wanted to have, uh, you know, with his students. Some of those unique elements we referenced, um, there was a little store near the 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 Carlson Gracie Club uh, that specialized in importing uh, like exotic produce from the Amazon, and one of the things that they imported was acai. Uh, all these guys, uh, again, this is the son of Carlos Gracie, right? So all these guys are into the Gracie diet. They're all making the smoothies and everything. So they got really into acai for whatever reason, and it just became this unique kind of idiosyncratic thing that was associated with after training we get acai. And that's somehow spread throughout the entire culture. Uh, that crianche term we used before, uh, like I mentioned, uh, apparently Carlson was really into this soap opera called Mandala, and there was this character on it named Crianche. 
who was known for like, you know, backstabbing and being indecisive and switching teams and stuff. And so he started to employ that term. So that's where a lot of this stuff came from, was this school that, that Carlson opened and this unique group of individuals that he recruited to be really the first, if you think about it, group classes of jiu-jitsu, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu taught anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that's where so much of this stuff ultimately comes from. I wish idiosyncratic is the perfect phrase, and it's too bad a lot of this stuff gets lost because mm-hmm. that's just an amazing detail. Yeah, his, it's a character on uh, uh, Young and the Restless equivalent. <laughs> like that's what that's where the term came from. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he was that kind of guy, you know. Like we'll we'll talk later about his personality, but like he was just known for just being jovial and mm-hmm. cracking jokes all the time. And it would be very similar to the vibe that like we know with our instructor, you know. Like, and so different from the way I think things were handled by, by Carlos and Elio, essentially. Um, because Carlson was so, so uh, like, just obsessed with competition, this ultimately really led to a much more rapid evolution of the art. Um, now, there had been uh, some school versus school stuff and tournaments before, but Carlson really was responsible for shifting the culture of jiu-jitsu to being very focused on this idea of competition between jiu-jitsu schools. Um, he was actually the first Gracie willing to train his fighters to actually fight against Gracie family members. Uh, I saw an interview where he said he would never do that for Valley Tudo or for street fights, but you know, in sport jiu-jitsu, he was happy to do it. Um, at first, there were a lot of in-house tournaments where Carlson students would fight against Elio's students at the original Gracie Academy to kind of determine who would then go on to represent the Gracies as a whole in these larger tournaments. Um, and then eventually, he started just entering tournaments uh, with his fighters under his own banner and you know, kind of made them unique and separate from the original Gracie Academy. Um, later on, there would be a major, though, friendly rivalry between Carlson students and Hull students. Uh, once Hulls opened his parallel school in the same building. And that rivalry was the main one in the sport jiu-jitsu scene all throughout the 1980s, right? I mean, it was basically these two camps, right? The the, the Hulls lineage and, and the Carlson lineage kind of fighting against each other. Um, and it continues to this day in that the majority of competition schools actually trace their lineage either back to Carlson or back to Hulls. Um, this didn't go over so great <laughs> in the sense that uh, this competition led to a real friction between Carlson and Elio. And this is another thing that people don't like to talk about, right? Because you like to portray there's this harmonious family. Um, but I read an interview, or no, I have watched it. This one was on video, actually, I want to say, uh, with Sonia Gracie as Carlson's daughter. And she was super frank about this rivalry. She basically said that uh, she saw Elio as being very vain and having the expectation that all the other family members, which she used the phrase, lick his boots, and she said that Carlson was unique in that he was not willing to put up with this. And he would always remind his uncle, he'd say, you know, you're just a human being. You're just a human being. Um, he seems like he had a lot in common. I'm going to talk about like how certain themes seem to get repeated with each generation in the, in the jujitsu story. And Carlson in some ways reminds me a lot of George Gracie, you know, who was the brother that just couldn't be controlled by Carlos. You know, he had to go his own way. Uh, he was more of a rebel, and I think that that Carlson has a lot in common uh, with with George. Um, Sonia felt that that Elio was was jealous of Carlson, um, and again, when you think of that that part of the origin story where you know he has to avenge his loss, I mean, you know, maybe that makes some sense, you know, mm-hmm. as far as like Carlson stepping in and beating Santana. Um, Carlinos Gracie, he said that that the, the schism was like two generals from the same army who decided to have a civil war. I mean, that's pretty telling, right? He also noted that he spent his whole young life 
basically fighting against Carlson's students, which is hilarious when you consider Carlson is his brother, right? But, uh, you know, but, but Carlinos was training at the Gracie Academy under Elio. Um, Carlson's school ultimately became the chief rival of the original Gracie Academy. So this was a real shift in focus from self-defense against untrained opponents um, to really focusing on jujitsu versus jujitsu, right? Or, you know, jujitsu versus other arts in the, in the form of Valley Tudo. So when you think about increased competition, like, I think it's, it makes sense to use like an evolutionary lens, right? So like we all like studied evolution, whether it be high school or college or whatever, survival of the fittest. And there's this idea of like biological evolution occurring over a lot of generations. And that means that death is actually an important variable. Like if you die before you're able to procreate, your genes don't get passed along. And then that kind of shapes the the species, right? So I guess the jujitsu equivalent would be like taps or submissions. Like you're not dying, but if, if you if you tap, I suppose you're simulating death. Uh, well, then that technique or that strategy is probably not going to get passed along in your game or taught to your students, right? So the, the art evolves just the way that, that species can evolve. And when you increase competition, when you have a lot more live rolling, when you bring in the best fighters, the most talented athletes, you're just increasing sort of that evolutionary pressure, if you will, right? So you, uh, I think this is really why we see this explosion in, in technical sophistication around the same time. And then ultimately when the Gurbara, uh, Guanabara, I want to say Guanabara Federation, it's founded in 67 and, you know, by Carlinos eventually becomes the IBJJF. Uh, that really accelerated this evolution because now you've got all of this like competition scene and all these matches. So the technique wise, it just explodes at that point. Um, Drysdale. Uh, so Robert Drysdale, I think we referenced quite a bit in our, in our first podcast and he wrote now two books on the history of jujitsu. And he's the first to admit that he's largely uh, like sort of calling attention to the Chake books by Padera. Um, but he's presenting them in a way more accessible way. And so I think Robert Drysdale's really done an amazing service uh, to jujitsu because I think he did a really nice job with those books. Um, and in, in his latest one, he basically says he doesn't think that, that, that Helio and Carlos were really responsible for any technical innovation. He thinks they were just doing judo. And so for him, it's like, all right, well, if you look at like Kosen judo being taught in Japanese universities, they're doing De La Hiva hook. They're doing omoplatas from the guard, right? All this is on, on film, right? Predating the Gracie brothers. So he's sort of saying like, I don't even understand why anyone went to the Gracie brothers. Like how did they manage to market themselves when you had native Japanese who were trained at the Kodokan teaching in, in Brazil? Like why was anyone going to the Gracie brothers? Um, I don't think this is fair, uh, honestly. I guess this is one area where I kind of disagree with, with Drysdale. Um, I think that it's hard to parse out what's true because of the strength of the origin myth. But I think like, um, like Hickson, right? When he wrote his book, I actually brought that one along as well. I, have, I don't know if you, have you had a chance to read Breathe by, by Hickson? No, no. It's good. It's, it's interesting, right? Um, but he says some things about Helio that are very unflattering, right? Um, like he tells a story where he's being taken, like his dad literally asked him, I'm paraphrasing here, but he asked him something like, hey, would you like to have more siblings? And he's like, uh, I guess so. So he takes him in the car and he drives him to like a secret household that, that Hickson had never known about. And he's like, introduces him to these other children that were his siblings, right? And a lot of the stuff I think really bothered Hickson. 
<laughs> so it's not like he's unwilling to say bad things about his dad, right? But at the same time, you know, he has repeatedly said uh, in interviews that he thinks that his father was like Albert Einstein was to physics when it comes to the development of the, like the guard position and jujitsu in general, right? I think Hickson Gracie is somebody who would be well positioned to know whether what his father was doing was actually sophisticated and impressive, right? So I think we've got to kind of take his word for it, that there was some development that went on. There was innovation that went on. Um, and in some ways, I guess it's kind of like a, like, a, like a circle or something. I mean, like these early Ryu in Japan were so deadly and dangerous, like, you know, gouging the eyes and stomping the groin and everything that you couldn't really practice it, you know, against live resistance. So the genius of Kodokan Judo, right, uh, and Jigoro Kano was to make it safe so you could actually practice it uh, like a sport, full go, trying as hard as you could, right? And so that really evolved it technically, right? Well, but then I think the Gracie brothers, they took that and they said, well, what if we took the sport jujitsu and we really tried to apply it to self-defense and uh, to Valley Tudo matches as our marketing strategy? And I think that led to some important evolution ultimately. And then, of course, it goes around because then you've got guys like Carlson uh, and, and hulls that come in and say, okay, well, now let's take the self-defense, Valley Tudo-oriented, you know, fighting jujitsu, and now let's do lots of rolling and lots of competition, and that further evolved it. So I think it's just like this, this dynamic that keeps making it more and more evolved and complex. So I, I think we got to give some credit, you know, to that first generation for some technical evolution, sure. certainly. Yeah. If nothing else, name another scientist like Einstein from that era or otherwise, there's the pop culture icon. Like sure. you have, he had visibility. Helio, I, there's a reason I know his name. Sure. Helio. Sure. Right. So yeah. that's a piece of the evolution and the advancement of the art too, just like an Einstein yeah. or dare I say a Bill Nye or a <laughs> Neil, Neil deGrasse, right? Or, yeah. yeah. Um, or what's his name from the eighties? The real one, the good one, the poet, scientist, the poet, Cosmos. Carl Sagan. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 How do I forget his name? But I remember Bill Nye. Anyhow, you know what I'm saying? Like just the visibility and having the figurehead, even if there is some mysticism and stuff attached, that's a piece too, you know, like are we able to spread it because of that? Have you seen, this is a complete side note, but have you seen Neil deGrasse Tyson on like uh, any podcast recently? He's been like promoting books and stuff, but he'll go on like Theo Vaughn. Yeah. yeah. It is so hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like and he's yeah. just willing to throw down with mm-hmm. these guys and talk about anything. Right. You know, that no accessibility how is or, huge. Yeah. Yeah. You know, are you a personality? Can you kind of sell it? Can you show up wherever and have fun? Well, that's, that's why we know these guys' names, you know, yeah. Einstein was kind of one of those, wasn't he? That's my impression is a little more accessible and kind of goofy and had an image versus yeah. just sitting in a lab somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and had takes on politics and pacifism and, and religion. I mean, yeah, for sure, for sure. So as far as like getting a feel for for Carlson and what he was all about, people absolutely love the guy. He was always described as personable and passionate and lovable. Um, he eventually moved to Chicago to, to be with his son and teach at his school. And there's this great uh, documentary you can find online where they interview a bunch of former students and they ask just kind of like, what was he like as a person? And they just have all these anecdotes about like, he loved uh, Chipotle and he loved uh, Frappuccinos at Starbucks and he called it Starbuckies. And uh, he loved different types of music and Japanese art. 
he loves soccer as a fan and famously as a referee later. He, he refereed at a high level. Uh, he loved talking and telling long stories. Just people had such an affection for him, you know? Everyone acknowledges he had incredible jiu-jitsu. It's like perfectly balanced jiu-jitsu that was effective in sport tournaments, but it only included techniques uh, that would also work in a real fight, right? He was committed to that. Um, have you ever heard of uh, takaria? Are you familiar with that term? No. So it's like slap fighting. Uh, and I think in Portuguese, uh, again, this, I do not know Portuguese, but I think it, it means something along the lines of test or something like that. But it was like a, a way of like sort of testing your jujitsu to make sure that it was still hold up in a real fight, right? right? That we go, right. weren't going too far down the wormhole of Barambolo or Worm Guard. Yeah, or Worm Guard, right? Something where it's like, you'd probably get knocked out right. if you're going to pull deep half right. in a fight or whatever, you know? Yeah, sure. Um, so he was committed to this, to this idea of like, hey, if you're doing something and I think it would get you punched in the face, I'm going to slap you in the face. Uh, you know, or sometimes we'll do matches where where we allow this so you'll kind of get a feel for that. Um, so, so he you, came up with EBI rules. Essentially, yeah. yeah he Com- came combat. up with Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, uh, he made the twister famous before. <laughs> uh, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. Uh, but, I mean, it, it speaks to the value of that. Like, it's sort of an in-between for, let's say, normies like you and I, where mm-hmm. I'm not going to do a lot of sparring. I'm not against a little bit of putting some gloves on, but yeah. I'm not just not going to spend a lot of time on that. But I do like the idea that I can kind of pressure test the grappling stuff that I do relative to a hand coming down on me. Oh, yeah. Like, probably a lot of folks at our school don't know this, but the first few years that M-Theory was open, uh, there was a once-a-week, what, what Ishmael called a combatives class, and we would wear the light, you know, MMA gloves for the entire class. And it basically was like Takaria. You could, you could, you know, lightly, we wouldn't try to knock each other out, but you could punch each other um, while doing jujitsu. And so it was such a helpful thing. And I did that class every single week for all the time that it was offered, you know, for however many years. Um, I think ultimately it never expanded. It was the same group of like eight of us that showed up, you know, shout out to Max Lundin and Dave Scora and Mahir and all the dudes that would go to that class. Um, but it was really, really useful because it made you keenly aware of what things you're doing in jujitsu would potentially get you knocked out versus what would keep you safe. Um, it was super interesting. Tricky from a marketing standpoint to like the young suburban couple looking <laughs> for an after school activity for their six year old, but you know, unfortunately, there were some black eyes for sure. Yeah. Uh, I remember having like a locker room conversation fairly early into it where we kind of got into this debate about how hard should we be punching each other? <laughs> right. Where's uh, the line? Here? Yeah, 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 yeah. Especially with Scora in there. Uh, you know, <laughs> I remember it's funny. Uh, I remember Scora initially being kind of resistant, like, well, we're all consenting adults. Why can't we punch each other pretty hard? You know, <laughs> that's, that's... And I just kind of talked about like, well, we want to do this for a long time. You know, we don't really want to get like head injuries. And, and I remember him coming back and be like, nope, that's right. Like we should probably yeah, like, yeah. ease up a bit. Good like, call. <laughs> yeah. He's a reasonable man. We all got to work in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that class was so much fun. And I, I think that's a really valuable thing to, to do. Um, Everyone has me to blame if we start reintroducing this in our training, but uh, you know, I, I think it's a really useful thing. Um, everyone who talks about Carlson would also talk about his generosity. So he was the kind of guy where, like, if you complimented his watch, he would just take it off and give it to you, right? Uh, he's always picking up the check. Um, when he was a pro fighter, he shared most of those winnings with his family, you know, because that was the lifeblood of, of the Gracie family during those dark days of jujitsu. Um, he never apparently demanded his fair share of the inheritance when, when his father, Carlos, died. Uh, as I noted, a lot of his students didn't even pay him, and he was famous for you know seeming to not care about this. Uh, he would never read the contracts when his pro fighters would fight professionally. He would just take their word for it. 
Um, he was just a very trusting person. Um, you know, this becomes very relevant in the final phase of his life that we'll talk about, but it's worth noting that as far as I know, he is the only Gracie that has a public statue uh, in Brazil, right? So, I mean, he is beloved and recognized, uh, you know, for his incredible contribution, but he always lived a very modest life. Uh, he never amassed much wealth. Um, and I think again, at the end of his life, this really became an issue, uh, where his lifetime of generosity, I think he started to kind of regret or feel like he had been taken advantage of essentially. Um, Carlson also, uh, didn't seem to care nearly as much as the other family members about like who got credit for developing jujitsu. Um, so, and, and yet he has the statue. And yet he has a statue. Amongst a family yeah. and people who really would prize yeah. such a gesture, I'm sure. Absolutely. So, again, telling. Absolutely, yeah. Um, when he retired as a Valley Tudo legend, his team went on to dominate sport jiu-jitsu in the 70s, the 80s, and into the 90s. He really built an army of just incredible fighters. So uh, in BJJ, you had like Ricardo de la Riva. I think you're familiar with his guard. Uh, you had Ricardo Laborio. Uh, and then in MMA, MMA, he had like um, Murillo Bustamante, Vitor Belfort. Later on, Stefan Bonner from The Ultimate Fighter, Miguel Torres, right? These were Carlson fighters. Um, some of these fighters started to bring in real money. So as I mentioned later in his life, uh, Carlson left Brazil and he went to live in Chicago with uh, his son Carlson Jr. And he taught at the academy there. And it was during this period that he really started to develop hurt feelings and anger regarding not receiving what he saw as sort of his fair share of earnings from his fighters and from his students. And this was probably true in many cases, right? Um, I haven't seen the contracts, so I don't know for sure, but I mean, uh, keep in mind that a lot of these guys were guys that had never paid Carlson even for like instruction. Uh, so he probably had a leg to stand on there, um, but he got really bitter about it. And he started asking all of his fighters to sign these contracts where they would agree to give him 20% of their earnings. Apparently the kind of going rate back then was like five to 10%. So this was steep. Uh, and the contracts didn't actually require that Carlson uh, would fulfill his role as coach and trainer. Uh, he was living in Chicago. Most of his fighters were still living in Brazil. And he was sort of expecting that the fighters would travel out to do their training camps with him in Chicago. So based on these terms, almost all of his senior fighters refused to sign these contracts. And it created a rift. Uh, in 2000, there was a real schism where a large group of Carlson's top students, so this is like uh, Marilla Bustamante, Ricardo Laborio, Mario Sperry, Luis Roberto Duarte, they all broke away and they started Brazilian top team. This was going to be a school that was really just going to be devoted um, to focus on MMA. Um, later on, this further fractured. So like in 2003, Laborio left and he started American top team in Florida. So a lot of people are probably familiar, you know, from, again, from like watching the ultimate fighter or whatnot, 2007, the Nogueira brothers left, uh, and they ended up training fighters like Anderson Silva and Leota Machida. Um, Novo Uniao was founded by a Carlson black belt and he ended up training, you know, BJ Penn, Vitor Shaolin Rivero, uh, Jose Aldo. So, you know, like when we started out talking about historical distance, now we're talking about names that, I mean, were pretty common, you know, very recently. So, I mean, again, it kind of speaks to this being fairly recent history. Right. Two generations yeah, from quote unquote founding to, hey, I've seen that guy fight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as far as like how Carlson's legacy is portrayed in the, the Horian myth or the origin story or marketing story, whatever you want to call it, um, Carlson died in 2006 of kidney failure, but people said he died of like a broken heart because he was so upset about, you know, these senior students leaving him and he felt so cheated. Um, 
very few of his former students remained close to him uh, because there were all these hurt feelings. And so there really wasn't anyone out there to kind of tell his story or to champion his role. It's kind of a miracle he ended up with a statue in the sense that, you know, there just weren't enough people like, you know, like uh, Elio, he, he had Horian to create this whole story where he was the center. And then like Carlos's daughter came out with her book and she was hoping to like set the record straight and tell like a Carlos-centric story, right? Well, no one's out there really telling Carlson's story. Um, so it's been downplayed. You know, he's referred to as like an MMA pioneer and for training without the gi, you know, and he's recognized for always, you know, keeping it real as far as being aware of strikes. Uh, and even like Carlson Jr., when I saw an interview with him, these were the same things that he pointed to, right? It's almost like he's bought into the myth that's out there that, that he had these limited contributions. But in reality, I mean, Carlson was the most accomplished fighter and coach in jiu-jitsu history, full stop, right? And I mean, he should be recognized for that. The quality of the opponents he faced, complete dominance in sport BJJ and MMA, and the guy was just incredible. And I think ultimately, you know, he did more to shape the experience of jiu-jitsu as we currently know it than any other individual, at least in my opinion. He introduced the format and the teaching method used in every school around the world today. He attempted to make BJJ accessible to everyone. He broadened this base and it had a huge impact on the culture. I think he kind of like made jujitsu less weird <laughs> and more fun. And we talk about how odd the original Gracie brothers were. I mean, he made it like something that was super appealing, I think, to everyone. Um, just seeing jujitsu students as athletes, you know, like, hey, actually, maybe the physical qualities you bring in matter. And, you know, like any other sport. Um, I don't think all this stuff makes him the most important person in the history of jujitsu, but he's certainly up there in, you know, the, the top five or six, you know, names that we should be talking about. Uh you know, along with Jigoro Kano and Carlos and Helio and, and, and I would say Horian, and we'll talk about him. So yeah, just an incredible person. Who are your five? Who are my five? You said five or six. Let's say there's six. <laughs> Let me just fully derail the whole thing. Who are no, the no, five no, or no six? So I would say Jigoro Kano, for me, has to be number one, right? Because, I mean, by founding uh, Judo, I mean, that was the basis. Like early Brazilian jiu-jitsu really was judo, right? So, and just this concept of making training safe so that everyone can do it with full resistance is an incredibly just like paradigm-shifting concept, right? The next two, I'd say you have to include Elio and Carlos, right? Because I mean, they were so stubborn. They would not allow what they saw as their unique art, even though they probably were just essentially doing, you know, like idiosyncratic judo, uh, that was a little bit more ground oriented, but they were like, nope, this is different. This is totally different. In fact, what you're doing is fake bullshit. I mean, you know, they, they <laughs> but ultimately that stubbornness created the space for judo, you know, for jujitsu to evolve into this, what really is a distinct art now, you know, that is very different and unique. And I think the ground fighting is way more sophisticated than what you see in judo. I mean, so I would say that those would be the, the big three. And then, you know, here's where I'm saying if you had actual Mount Rushmore with four spots, that'd be tough because for me, Carlson, and then as we'll talk about, Horian, because Horian was so important for disseminating the art, making it popular, making the world know about it. None of us would be doing jujitsu yeah. if not for Horian, right? right. Um, and then if I had to do a six spot, I would probably say uh, Carlos Gracie Jr. Because... He was such a great organizer with the Guarabana, what, what ultimately became the, the IBJJF. And I mean, again, he is really single-handedly responsible for creating this vibrant, active, healthy, uh, well-organized 
sport jujitsu scene. And I mean, ultimately, like the sport is so much more popular and has evolved technically so much more because of that turn. Whereas if we had just stayed doing like self-defense oriented or even Valley Tudo stuff, it would have always been a very niche thing, right? You just, you wouldn't have your, you know, everyday Joe casuals going out there, you know, hobbyists to, to do this and, and love it right, and get obsessed right. with it. You kind of have the two outlier ends of the bell curve. You'd have the people who really want to fight, yeah. people who really don't want to fight, but they want to know how. Yeah. And you wouldn't be capitalized on that middle chunk of people who might just do this because yeah. it's fun and sport. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Like guys like uh, Drysdale or Bresler, I, I, I referenced, he came out with a book. Um, both of them really grind this axe about like, oh, you know, it's kind of an old man get off my lawn kind of thing, but it's a lot of like, oh, jujitsu's going the way of like, it's too sport oriented and it's not realistic enough. And it's, you know, but even, you know, somebody, uh, like Drysdale will acknowledge how important Carlos Gracie Jr. was and the formation of the IBJJF, because without that constant competition, again, would you see this kind of evolution? Would it have ever become so popular? I mean, because like, I don't know if jiu-jitsu is ever really going to be a super popular spectator sport. I actually don't think it's going to no, be. No, Because it's largely about practitioners are the people who also want to be the spectators. You know, yeah. who's watching flow grappling other than people who actually train jiu-jitsu? I would, I would even say it wasn't probably until recently mm-hmm. that I could watch any variety of levels of jiu-jitsu matches yeah. and, and know piece by piece what's happening. Yeah. Like it took years, yeah, not like ten years, but it took a couple three years to watch a match and roughly follow and in my head be able to list off positions yeah. and moves and stuff. It's such a, a a long learning curve to competency just on the vocab list. Mm-hmm. That's a tough sell to just you know your your weekend warrior type, let's say that might be interested in doing or watching such a thing. Yeah, yeah. Tough. And also good high level jujitsu mm-hmm. is not particularly sexy a lot of times. No. It is when you know the details. <laughs> yeah. Right. But it's not the Hail Mary throw to win the game that we're all sort of accustomed to in our sports watching. Right, right. Yeah. And I mean like the way the crowd gets so excited at like a near guard pass or something like that. You know, like, oh he almost passed his guard or he got, oh. a, he got a disadvantage. Yeah. Oh what? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I may have told you this story, but um do you remember were you into jujitsu when Metamoris came out? It was a little before me, okay. but I, I dove in hard, yeah. so I'm familiar. Super well-produced, super mm-hmm. slick, you know, mm-hmm. like super fights, uh, really cool, you know. Um, but like I was, you know, getting into jujitsu. I was pretty into it by then and, you know, getting obsessed. And I went to my annual guys weekend and we, uh, I, or I should say I rented uh, the pay-per-view for Metamoris and I put it on and we're all, you know, drinking and stuff. <laughs> These guys at this like cabin, right? And I'm like, guys, this is the highest level jujitsu. You are going to blown away. You're just going to be so amazed by this, you know? So I put it on and all my friends were, to a person were like, what the fuck is this? Like, what are we looking at? Yeah, like two guys scissoring. Why are we watching this? Two guys scissoring in pajamas. <laughs> yeah. You seem all excited because one guy's elbow went to the ground or something. Yeah, like, what right. are you even talking about? See, he got to a knee. That's two points. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah, God. yeah, yeah. And it was just like a real emperor has no clothes moment for me because I was like, oh, this is actually super boring, like yeah, to yeah. watch at yeah, least, you know? Yeah. But again, I mean, if you are a practitioner, it, it's pretty exciting. Right. 
that especially if you're not particularly good or experienced but you can like identify the thing you're like yeah see that he did the and you're looking around nobody else cares you're like okay anyway <laughs> i thought it was cool there is a reason why when you go to buffalo wild wings to watch a ufc event all you hear is yes. people screaming stand them up yep. stand them up yep. right i mean I just don't know that technical ground fighting is exciting just not, to no. the layperson or the yeah. average person. It's right. just, it's just not until until you're two, three years in. It just, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. The, the fights last night was at UFC two ninety five or something. First couple three fights were just like boxing. Yeah, a little bit, of, a few kicks in there. And when we're at Drew's place. I started chant, "Sit them down, <laughs> sit them down." This sucks, you know. Yeah, uh, people don't get it though. People don't get it. They want to see explosive knockouts. Mm -hmm. They want to see teeth flying. Yeah, for sure. For sure. They, are there a lot of teams running veer offenses mm -hmm. in the NFL these days? Yeah. Are there? No. Yeah. Exactly. Veer offenses? You know what I'm saying? Like old school, gutted up the middle. Oh, you know, right, right, right. Clouded dust and a couple just, yards. Yeah, kind of just yeah. keep going, keep going, keep going. It certainly wouldn't sell well. I, don't, I mean, I don't watch football, but yeah, it seems like that'd be a little on the boring side for most folks. Yeah, I mean, I think the league actually recognizes that it's boring because I don't know if you've been following it, but right now there's talk of like cracking down on the quarterback sneak uh, because like the brotherly shove in that play, if you're familiar with it, like yes. they have this new way of doing the quarterback sneak that's super effective yeah, in yeah. short yardage. Uh, and there's just too much conversion of like fourth and short and the league thinks it's boring. So the league's looking for ways. So now they're getting real ticky tack on how they're like calling like offensive line, like offsides and stuff. So yeah stupid <laughs> there's that divergence of like quality of execution and entertainment and i get it you know yeah it's a lot of money a lot of advertising dollars at stake etc cetera, etc cetera. but yeah anyway yeah it's a whole other like digression but like you know like drysdale talks a little bit about like how he would tweak the rule set to like make sport jujitsu more like like taqueria more sort of acknowledging without actually slapping each other but but like sort of acknowledging like hey we should still be thinking about a real fight and if we lose that we've we've kind of lost everything yeah. um, and I don't know if that's true or not I mean I'm kind of of the mind that I think all of it's pretty interesting MMA is interesting I think you know sport jujitsu is interesting self defense stuff is interesting like you know do we really need to to be so rigid about uh, it all has to be you know fight oriented I mean well so yeah that's like a puritanical version of it like well it's a section of fighting yeah. okay but in a fight this wouldn't go terribly well okay I hear you but yeah. we're examining the technical elements of a piece of it I guess I would think of like you know I was a shot putter yeah and or like javelin where did those come from mm -hmm. warfare like mm -hmm. the, this is the guys that would load the cannon they mm -hmm. got you know got in the habit of seeing who could throw it the highest or the farthest you know and all that stuff well, how real do you want that to be? Mm. <laughs> you yeah. know, just let it be a tiny slice of like a side game yeah. of the real thing so that nobody dies. And same sort of deal. Like, I don't want to get punched in the face. Right. Just let me master the grappling element. Right. What, what is wrong with that per se? I'm not going to get in a fight. I personally, too. I mean, you hear these stories that like people imply, like if you were a world champion of sport jujitsu, you know, that if you got in a real fight, like you would get your ass kicked or something. I just do not think that is accurate. No, uh -uh. I think you would so easily handle the average, you know, Joe Sixpack on the street. Like, I, you know, you wouldn't try to barambolo them. I mean, no. you would have the good sense to know, like, you know, what should you do in a real fight? But if you are the person that you just described, like yeah. a world-class level, yeah. you may as well barambolo them because <laughs> yeah. they're not going to have a chance. Yeah. And it's got nothing to do with the techniques and positions one would name off and teach. Sure. It's just the inherent, like the balance. Yeah. Where am I on my feet? Yeah. You ever watch 
the regular folks in videos caught of street fights, it's a disaster. Yeah, yeah. So you take someone who's practiced moving balanced, that alone, you're going to win the fight. You're going to defend yourself, whatever you need to do. Yeah, I would agree. So yeah, Baron Bolo, go ahead. You yeah. get a little scraped up. So you know? I, I just don't share these like catastrophizing fears right. that like, oh, if we don't keep it real with, you know, only doing things that would work in a fight, then everyone's going to, you know, lose their martial yeah. values. And right. yeah, right. I just, I don't think. Well, then judo right. better allow wrestling grips and leg grabbing <laughs> then. You know what I mean? Like sure. if this is boiled down, then that's boiled down. And so is all the rest of it, you know? Sure. sure. Have a good time guys. Come on. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay. All right. Well, so if, if Carlson is probably the most important name that I think has not been given enough credit, Another person would be Halls Gracie. So sometimes it's pronounced Hollis. That's the way a lot of folks say it in, in Brazil. Sometimes it's Halls. It's spelled Rolls, but this is who we're talking about. And if you're Brazilian, don't be offended that I'm yeah. probably going to say Halls. Just go Halls. Yeah, yeah, yeah Keep yeah. it simple. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so he was the biological son and 12th child of uh, Carlos Gracie. Um, Carlos had had an affair with a flight attendant uh, while he was with his second wife. Uh, she remained in his life, but wanted him to be raised in a giant family, like the idea of him being a Gracie. Um, but she still like stayed in his life. She would use her travel benefits as a flight attendant to take halls around the world. And a lot of people think this may be why he had such an open-minded approach to jujitsu. He would travel, see other things, train in other arts, et cetera. Right. He was just a bit more worldly than, than most of his cousins. Right. Um, Carlos's wife, maybe not surprisingly, did not feel comfortable uh, raising the the child of of Carlos's mistress, and so at the same time, Elio and his wife uh, Margarita were not able to have children on their own. Uh, Margarita had fertility issues, right? So all of Elio's children were were with women other than Margarita. So uh, ultimately, what they decided would they would essentially give baby Halls to Helio and Margarita to raise as their first son. So that's like his origin story, and obviously it's it's a unique one, right? Um, as he got older, Halls was training at the original Gracie Academy under Elio. Uh, but eventually he decided to start training with Carlson. So he went over to that, that, you know, Carlson Gracie club. Um, there are different versions as always of why he left. So some people said he wanted to branch out from the Gracie Academy in terms of the training format. You know, now that they were doing these group classes and all this live rolling, some people say he just wanted more competition, uh, other people have alleged that he was uh, struggling a bit in some tournaments. Uh, and this last part is kind of supported by there are firsthand accounts of Halls struggling initially with the senior students over at Carlson's. Uh, so it might be that because this was a much more competitive atmosphere, um, you know, maybe he went there to secure an advantage as far as like, hey, I need to go where the competition is the most intense. And that seems in line with his personality. Also just kind of logics out like, sure, yeah, sure. I'm going to go do better. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, by all accounts, Halls blossomed into an incredible grappler. Uh, there are multiple interviews out there, very credible sources that saw firsthand Halls rolling with Hickson. And they said that he was consistently getting the best of Hickson. So Hickson has not surprisingly a different uh, telling of this. Like, so in his book and in interviews, he kind of talks about, like, I can't remember the exact numbers he used, but he said, like, okay, like, the last 60 rolls we had, I felt like, you know, before he died, be before Halls died, uh, Hickson said, you know, like, the first 20, he was definitely getting the better of me, and then the mid-20, like, we were kind of even up, you know, trading, and then the last 20, he felt like he pulled ahead, and so right around the time of his death, he felt like he was actually emerging as the superior fighter. 
It's a very well-crafted storyline. <laughs> very well done. It doesn't seem consistent with the accounts of others who were there to witness these roles, even near the time of Hulls' death. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're saying that uh, that that Hulls was consistently getting the best of him. But think how incredible this is, because we know what a badass Hicks and Gracie well, is. Well, people talk about him that yeah, way. Yeah. Like you watch him roll and he's, yeah. he's just nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So then if some guy was doing that to him, yeah. yo. Exactly. Like, yeah, like you can go online and find stories where, you know, black belts, good black belts, will talk about Hickson coming into a room full of good black belts <laughs> and just destroying them all, yeah. right? Yeah. So the idea that he had this brother that that was cleaning his clock, I mean, how good was Hall's Gracie, right? I mean, a lot of people claim that he's the best, you know, ever as far as, you know, a Gracie fighter. Um, so... Hulls eventually started running his own school. I think I mentioned this earlier. So mm-hmm. he kind of opened yep. up a parallel school. Um, he, Carlson was known as a terrible businessman. He's not even like charging people tuition half the time, right? So Hulls was not like that. He did not want to partner up in a financial sense. So he said, okay, well, let's share the space. So, you know, you're teaching a class on Monday night. I'll teach on Monday morning and then we'll do the opposite on Tuesday, that kind of thing. So they basically operated as like two independent schools with separate student bodies you know, inside the same school. Can you imagine if that happened, like at our school, if suddenly we had a different professor with a whole different set of students, but on our mats? I mean, that's crazy, it right? It would be strange, especially if, it, if the idea was that they were separate groups of people. Yeah, yeah. Because it's just human nature. There'd be immediate melding and crossover, you know. So they claim that there was quite a bit of cross-training. Okay. Uh, and there was this good-natured rivalry, which I think really speaks to the character of both Carlson and, and Halls, that they had a good-natured rivalry. But, like, you know, Halls' student would come in uh, into the school and like, you know, to, to, to do his class. And then Carlson would be in his ear like, Hey, maybe you should train with me instead. You know, we're doing great stuff. You know? So Mm -hmm. it was that kind of like tease each other, kind of good natured rivalry. Um, Hulls was immediately recognized to be an excellent instructor. Um, and you know, they have different personalities. So Carlson's an older guy. And so he, at this point is more of like a father figure kind of vibe. Whereas Hulls is a younger guy is, is more like a peer essentially. Um, but yeah, just wild that they operated this, you know, like kind of two separate schools inside the same school. Um, you know, as far as like Hall's legacy is ultimately portrayed in the official story, if you will, you know, he was the family champion in between uh, Carlson and then later Hickson. Uh, incredible teacher and coach. Students did great in competition and uh, they were the main competitors for, for Carlson's school. You know, there's this kind of rivalry. Many of Hall's students went on to start incredible lineages of their own. So Carlos Gracie Jr. Uh, was a Hulls guy, and he founded Gracie Baja. Uh, Fabio Gergel uh, was a Hulls guy, and he founded Alliance. So you think of all the people under the Alliance umbrella. You got Marcelo right. Garcia, you got Lucas Lepre, you got Cobrinha, right? And then uh, thousands and uh, thousands of people yeah. that you've never heard yeah, of. Yeah. I mean, that school, those two teachers, right. that really is the lineage for the vast majority of, of competition jiu-jitsu now, right? So Hulls tragically passed away at 31 in a hang gliding accident. Um, it's a pretty gangster wig to yeah, go out, I gotta say. They, they, they tell a good tale <laughs> in this family, for sure. My lord, yeah. Um, there are probably some similarities to other like pop culture figures that died right mm-hmm. as they were coming into their peak. So you think of like a James Dean or a Jimi Hendrix, you know, there's always this speculation about like, right. well, what could he have done if he had you know been alive? Which just builds the, the legend yeah. even more. Oh, yeah. You know? But like in the legend, he's basically always portrayed as he was very open-minded. He was eager to learn from other arts and, you know, he was willing to compete in those arts. As far as like the real legacy of Halls Gracie, in my opinion, at least, 
Um, I mean, yeah, incredible you know, champion, incredible teacher. As a psychologist, I, I think that one of the most interesting things about Halls is actually like his role in the family considering his birth story. So this gets complicated, but just to you know, review, like imagine if your dad was the brother of your biological father and he conceived you in an affair with another woman, then gave you to his brother to raise you as his own son among his other kids who were all the biological children of your adoptive father, but not the women that you all considered to be your mother, right? This is a strange start. And I mean, and then you go fly around with your actual yeah. biological mother yeah. sometimes. Yeah. What? So like, you know, what would your status be if you yeah. were that kid right. in your family, like with your father's family or your uncle's family? How would you get along with your siblings or, you know, your cousins? Uh, would everyone resent you? Would you be this pariah? Uh, would you have like essentially the lowest status in the family? Uh, you know, product of, uh, you know, an affair, et cetera. I mean, but instead, Halls was like the ultimate unifier. Uh, in the two sides of the family. I mean, he got along great with Helio. He got along great with Carlos. The children of both of those guys called him their brother. Nobody called him their cousin. Everybody called him their brother, right? Um, everyone loved and respected Halls. Both sides of the family wanted to train with him, you know, regardless of whether you're a Helio guy or a, a Carlos guy. I mean, you wanted to train with with Halls. Um, I just think that says so much about him as a, as a fighter, as a, as a teacher, as a person. He must have just been such an incredible person to end up playing that unifier role. Uh, and ultimately, I mean, to take a group of people like the Gracies, I mean, they're so strong-willed and stubborn and, and partisan. I mean, by all accounts, mm -hmm. the idea that he could unify them and bring them together in their love for Halls, I mean, that's, that's amazing, you know? Um, if there's one thing, though, that really stands out for me about Halls, I don't think he had a fear of losing. Uh, the reason I say that, like the first generation of Gracies, you know, they always stress like, oh, our jujitsu is like perfect and superior to all the other arts. Like we don't need anything from these other arts. And they, you know, like put down other arts. And Halls was all about cross-training. He wanted to, to train in other arts, right? He wanted to learn from other people. He was always open to that. Um, the Gracies also, Carlos and Elio, they felt the need to really aggressively negotiate like the terms of all of their, their fights, you know, to secure some kind of advantage. So they, you know, the duration, the conditions for victory, even like the uniform specifications, this was all like heavily negotiated, right? Now you look at Halls, he would just show up and compete and he would do it in other arts like judo, wrestling, sambo. He would just fight under their rule set and he would often win. I mean, he was not afraid of losing. He never went to that tried and true Gracie PR approach of saying, oh, I didn't really lose. It was a draw, even though I got dominated. That shows my, you know, whatever. I mean, no, he was just like, he was willing to throw down. And if he lost, he lost. I think that he just intuitively, he understood that like error-free learning is not the most efficient form of learning. Like you have to have some L's, you have to have some 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 losses, some failure to learn from those mistakes. And he wasn't afraid of that. You know, he was willing. It's almost like the the earlier generations were so conscientious about building a legacy. Yeah, that you had to sell everything yeah. a certain way. Yeah. Where ironically, the guy that just disregarded that probably has the coolest legacy. Yeah. Because he went and, like you say, he took the L's and learned and yeah. got better and then became his own little legend and had a, probably, again, a cooler legacy. It might not be sold as well. but Yeah. Oh, I mean, he didn't have to go around you know, saying, oh, I'm 400 and O or whatever. I mean, he would just show up and show you. Like, here's how I fight. I'll fight. I'll fight under your rule set. Uh, I think it's really admirable. Um, 
you know, he didn't want to hide jujitsu from anyone. You know, he was very about like open source jujitsu, teach everyone everything, make your students better. If they get better, you're going to get better. You know, I mean, and that I think has become part of our culture. Um, and like you're saying, I mean, for me, you know, he was the coolest Gracie. I, I don't know what he would have went on to if he had lived. Um, but I think he would certainly end up the leader of the entire Gracie family. He was on that trajectory. Uh, he had that open-minded, innovative approach. Um, he was loved by everyone. He just had an incredible impact, you know. It again, it is like the Joplin, Hendrix, Tupac, Biggie. <laughs> Tupac's you know, alive, of course. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah, that's a different episode entirely. Oh yeah, this whole list is. A, but I mean, there there is some extra layer to that when the there's this forced mystery. Yeah. There's all this goodness and greatness, and then yeah. It does. It it adds to the story. However, oh yeah. Unfortunate. There's sure. a mystique there for sure. Yeah. 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 So now, thanks to Carlson and Halls, Jiu-Jitsu has this incredibly appealing product to sell. It's effective in self-defense. It's got a growing and well-organized competition scene. Since to uh, thanks to Carlinos, uh, the academies had a culture that made training fun and addictive, as we all know, right? But now who's going to market this incredible product? Who's going to bring it to the world? Enter Hori and Gracie, right? And this is another guy, like we already talked, like Mount Rushmore. Like this guy had an incredible impact. Uh, he was the oldest natural born son of Elio. And then after Hall's passing, he was the oldest son, you know, overall. Um, he started teaching at the original Gracie Academy when he was quite young. Um, by the time he's like 17, he saved up enough money that he can take a month-long vacation in America. So he packs his bags, he goes to California, he stays at the Hollywood YMCA, and he's very nervous that he's going to like lose his ticket. There were paper tickets back then and all his money. So he leaves them all with the receptionist. The receptionist immediately steals both, right? Mm -hmm. So now he's in America, no money, no return ticket. Uh, he, it, When I've heard interviews with him, he claims that it was gonna take six months to get the tickets reissued. Uh, that sounds crazy to me, but that's his story, so we'll go with it. Um, so now he's going to be in America for six months with no money. He talks to his dad, and he lies and says, oh, no, you know what? I'm having such a great time. I decided to stay for six months. Now he's like working at White Castle, and he's out panhandling in the street. He's hustling. He's doing anything he can to support himself. This is the kind of guy that Horian was. He is just a scrappy, opportunistic you know, fighter in, in every sense, you know, like... Uh, pretty amazing guy. Is there is there a nugget given uh, maybe it's just the impression I have yeah. of Brazil? Yeah. Is there a nugget of question mark about a dude from Brazil <laughs> handing all of his money <laughs> to a receptionist, a front desk worker or something? You know what I mean? Like I you've told me this story obviously and and now I'm hearing it again yeah. and I'm yeah, going, yeah. "Now wait a minute. That yeah. is bad. Yeah. Bad instincts." So, I mean, Yo. He's the only one that was there to witness it, obviously, because he's sure. alone in America. Yeah. So the only accounts that I've ever seen or read are from Horian himself. Yeah. And that's his story. Right. You know, he leaves it with the receptionist at the YMCA. They take right. his stuff. Right. Yeah. But now... Hold on. One note. Oh, in yeah. In case yeah. there's young folks listening to this. Yeah. You used to be able to stay at a YMCA. It's fun to stay at the yeah, YMCA. The, it, hence the lyric of the song. But like <laughs> that was a part of what YMCA is where it was a place to like literally live for yeah. some period of time. Yeah. So that might sound weird to people who are like, that's where you play basketball. Yeah. So anyway, go ahead. You wouldn't just play basketball, but you could also get yourself clean and have a good meal. You could do whatever you feel. 
So yeah, that that's how it worked back then. Those same people probably <laughs> never heard those lyrics. So this is just sounding weird. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. Fair enough. But this trip was really important because Horian got a taste of America and he started to formulate this vision that he followed for a very long period of time diligently of how am I going to expand jujitsu to the whole world? And based on what he saw, he believed that if you could conquer America, that was as good as conquering the world because everyone looks to America for ideas. Uh, so if his you can plan make beca- it here, you can make it anywhere. Yeah, there you Something go. Yeah, like w- let's just do the we'll do the entire podcast just song lyrics. Now. <laughs> 70s song lyrics. 70s song lyrics. But so he, this is the start of the plan, you know, of like the 17 year old kid thinking like, this is what I have to do. I have to come back and I have to bring jujitsu to America. So first he goes back to, uh, to Brazil and he finishes college. He goes to law school and it's not until 1978 that he makes his way back to California. So now he's living in Southern California, uh, not at the YMCA this time, right? He's renting a place and he's doing a variety of odd jobs, including uh, housekeeping. So like he's going and cleaning people's houses. One of the people he's going to uh, was this woman whose husband was the assistant director for the show Starsky and Hutch, right? I think we, we joked about like how Horian appeared on an episode of Three's Company. Mm-hmm. Like he was all about the 70s mm-hmm. TV stuff. Mm-hmm. So he's there cleaning the house and she says, hey, you're such a handsome guy. Uh, why are you not in the movie business? Now, I know this sounds like the setup for a 1980s porn, but she actually ended up connecting him with her husband. They got him headshots. He starts doing extra work, you know, as an extra on all these different shows like The Rockford Files and Fantasy Island. And everyone he talks to and interacts with on set or in Hollywood, he tells them about jujitsu. He offers them a free initial private lesson and these mats in his garage that he's got set up. Uh, You know, my family's champions, you gotta come experience this. He starts to develop what ultimately would become the marketing story, the origin story that we all know now, right? And during the private lessons, he would share this marketing story. He was kind of indoctrinating people, teaching them about this. Then he would say, hey, bring a friend back. If you refer a friend, you also will get another free private lesson. So this is the start, like how do I establish a beachhead, right? So he's doing this and eventually he's able to expand this as the years go on to like multiple Gracie garages, right? You've heard the the term Gracie garage and the Gracie challenge matches at these garages, right? So he brings over Hickson. He brings over Hoyler. He brings over Hoyce. He brings over all these guys to kind of run their own garages and he's got this network that he's coordinating. Eventually, he's able to found the Torrance Academy that we're all familiar with. You know, the one you see in the videos with, uh, with the suns and the green mat and everything, right? Um, and he eventually then switches to a group class format. So it basically, like I said, is like repeating the history, right? In the sense of like, they started out with private lessons in these garages, but eventually they're, they're able to just like Carlson did go to a group class format and create that culture. Was, were the two shifting to the group format related? No, no, no. So, so this is after Carlson had already done that, right? I guess that's what I'm saying is like, did he sort of see what was happening and and decide that was, no, it was just an issue of space. Oh, okay. So you're in a garage. Yeah. You've got so little room. He's got these little mat spaces set up, you know, where you can do live rolling. Right. So like you hear these stories of like the private lessons sometimes would end with some live rolling and that kind of thing, but that's what they had space for, you know? Uh, so then eventually, and also the other thing was, you know, it would have been great to establish like a big school and that kind of thing. They didn't have the money, right? He's over there on a tourist visa originally. I mean, he needed help just to get like leases signed to rent an apartment and stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so so he was making do with what he had. I mean, scrappy. Do you think there's any influence on the shift to the group classes given the like 
at least our culture's perception of martial arts at the time. Like, mm. I mean, you picture the like 80s karate schools and stuff just with lines of students yeah. doing the air sure, punches. Sure. I mean, but it, I can have this whole room full of people. Or do you think it was just its own organic development? I mean, I think baseball was going on in Brazil by then, you know, where people had moved to group classes. Oh, I yeah. think that was the goal. Sure. I think he wanted to get to that. He wanted to establish himself. But first, he needed to have some base because it... You know, I mean, there was so little money. Uh, you know, like if you just hung your shingle and were like, hey, uh, you've probably never heard of this because nobody associates martial arts with South America, but this is amazing. Come learn it. Like, ah, I mean, he had to have like a student base. So by the time they opened the Torrance Academy, there were all these people in this network that had been training doing these privates in these garages. Right, right. And now they get to go to group classes and train with each other. Yeah. So... Horian's other initial marketing strategy was a continuation of the old Gracie challenge from Brazil. So we talked about this last, you know, like anybody, you're challenged, come out here if you want to get your arm broken. Uh, you know, we'll <laughs> offer you a, a cash reward if you can beat me, that kind of thing. So he's putting this in like magazines and newspapers to, to drum up business. Um, he claims that he did more Gracie challenge matches than any other Gracie. Uh, he claims he did hundreds of them. Uh, you know, based on other reports from other folks, this is probably true. Uh, some of them were recorded and ultimately put out as the the Gracie in action tapes. Uh, so this was another marketing strategy, you know, and he would sell these in the little ads in Black Belt Magazine and that kind of thing, right? So since our last podcast, a couple of really good books have come out. And one of them is this book, Worth Defending by Richard Bresler. Um, so Bresler as I mentioned, was the first consistent student of Brazilian jiu-jitsu in America. He started training in Horian's garage in 1979. Uh, this book's an amazing addition to the small number of really credible first-person accounts of this critical period from you know the first Gracie garage in the late 1970s uh, up to the period of the birth of the UFC in 1993, right? Which is also a Horian creation. Um, now, I'm not trying to get all like uh, Joseph Campbell, you know, Star Wars on you here, but Again, there's this notion of like a lot of these like storylines, themes, character types that kind of get repeated in each generation, right? So when I read this book by Bresler, the person that kept coming to mind for me was a guy named Oscar Santa Maria. And we did not cover this at all in the first podcast. And this is definitely one of the most controversial and kind of scandalous parts of the entire jujitsu story. Uh, I don't think many people have heard of Oscar Santa Maria, but he was considered uh, the first um, like, uh, patron, if you will, of Carlos Gracie and the first generation of, of Gracie family, like business endeavors. Um, I don't want to get sued. So I want to acknowledge that all of this stuff I'm talking about with Oscar Santa Maria is taken directly from the Chake books by Padera, right? So he researched this, he is considered the world's authority, you know, the greatest historian of, of jujitsu history. And so he has documented all this stuff. Um, but basically, um, Oscar was a wealthy and well-connected banker uh, living in Rio. And he connects with, with Carlos, and they become friends. And he ultimately ends up supplying most of the financial backing for the opening of the Gracie Academy and all these different business ventures from 1929 all the way up to 1963. It gets weird, all right? So <laughs> Oscar Santa Maria was involved in something called the Rosicrucian Society, which I don't think many people have heard of, but if you were into the Da Vinci Code, however many years ago that came back, this was heavily featured in it. It's like a 17th century spiritual movement, and it blends like 
Christian mysticism and Kabbalah and alchemy and like, I don't know, supposed ancient teachings and all this kind of stuff, right? But I think it's actually important, even though this is a little bit scandalous, to talk about the Oscar Santa Maria and the Rosicrucian Society stuff because it actually helps explain a lot of the weirdness that we talked about in the very beginning of this podcast. Like, what is with all this? Don't have sex and eat special diets and all, you know, all this stuff. Like, you know, Carlos got really into like mysticism and ultimately he ends up telling Oscar Santa Maria that he is like a medium. He can be in contact with the spiritual world, right? And so Carlos says, I'm in contact with the spirit of a mysterious deceased Peruvian magician. And this Peruvian magician is talking through me and he's giving me all kinds of advice for you, Oscar Santa Maria. <laughs> I can't see your face. This is ridiculous. But <laughs> well, for one, I love the fact that he's mysterious, but he is a magician <laughs> from Peru and he's dead. Yeah. So it's kind of like Ouija board kind of stuff, yeah, right? Like he's in yeah. touch with this dead spirit. And what he's telling him is like, Oscar Santa Maria, you need to purchase a bunch of these properties, including <laughs> the Gracie Academy, and then you need to sign them over to the Gracie brothers. So I, I talked to a ghost. He wants you to buy me stuff. Basically, yeah. right? Again, this is according to, you know, Padera and Chake, but sure, uh, sure. it's a weird story. It gets I guess I can't disprove it. <laughs> you know. It gets stranger. Uh eventually uh Carlos uh, gets Oscar Santa Maria's then fiance, a woman named Lair de Aguar Silva, pregnant. So that probably, you know, made the friendship awkward. Um, but just for context, that that woman, uh, Laird de Aguiar Silva, that's the grandmother of Roger Gracie. So, yeah, I mean, things got very strange. But but basically, Santa Maria was this character in a nutshell that like was providing all this funding, right? Um, and in my mind, like Bresler was a lot like that, but for Horian and this next generation of Gracies, he was putting up a lot of the funds, right? Um, so. If you look at the subtitle of Worth Defending, it's How Gracie Jiu-Jitsu Saved My Life, right? So don't get me wrong. Like, Bresler is is a very positive, this is a very positive account of Horian and the Gracies and Jiu-Jitsu, right? But between the lines, at least for me, the book also tells the story of, like, Bresler in the Santa Maria-like role as the financial backer. And to me, it doesn't seem like he was necessarily treated fairly by Horian, Um Bresler wasn't rich. He came from a family that owned like a small fast food franchise business. And so they had some means and family connections. And he used that and his good credit uh, to help Horian to, to rent a house for the original Gracie Academy. They rented a house together. And Bresler said within a couple of weeks, like, who comes to visit? Well, it's Elio Gracie and Hickson Gracie crashing on our couch. I mean, this guy had a front row seat to all this incredible stuff. He would give Horian the money to travel back and forth to Brazil. Um, he would... Uh, put up the money to, to get the original lease for the original Gracie Academy in Torrance when that was opened. Uh, he put up the funding along with his parents for the original UFC. Um, so it's not like the extreme grift of like, I'm talking to a spirit and he tells me to give me your money or something like that. But just take the UFC, for example. So Bresler puts up $10,000. He convinces his parents to put up $10,000. This was a lot of money for Bresler at the time, right? And Bresler speaks to an attorney or has someone speak to an attorney and they say, oh, the way that Horian's got this contract worded, uh, unless this thing gets sold for a ton of money, if it gets sold, you could just like lose your entire initial investment. But Bresler has such faith in Horian that he says, no, nope, no problem. I'm going to put up the money. I'm going to convince my parents. Well, Horian eventually sells the UFC for a half million dollars, right, for his stake of it. 
And then he goes back to Bresler and he says, oh yeah, I mean, according to the contract, you don't get anything and your parents don't get anything. And Bresler's like, what? Listen, I will never invest any money with you again if we don't get our money back. So Horian goes back and talks to you know, his wife who may have talked him into it. And he goes back and he says, okay, we're going to give you and your parents your original money plus 10%. I mean, the UFC was sold in 2016 for $4 billion. This was like an angel investor. This was like one of the original investors. Mm-hmm. And not just in this, but also in the, the, the Torrance Academy and their you know, different instructionals and whatever. I mean, he was putting up a lot of the money. It just seems like as an early, early, early investor, shouldn't he be a really wealthy man? You know, just like Horian and Art Davies. I mean, I saw a recent video interviewing him and he lives in the super modest one-bedroom apartment in Santa Monica is where Bresler lives. Uh, he works at a Krav Maga school teaching jujitsu. Mm-hmm. I just... It just felt like, you know, gosh, you know, I don't know how to feel about this, right? Yeah. It seems like there's something missing there. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, Horian and Jiu-Jitsu probably did save Bresler's life. And I say that because he met Horian when he was like selling a waterbed or a mattress or something like, uh, you know, like like through the whatever the equivalent of Craigslist was back then. The, the want ads. Yeah, the want ads. Exactly. <laughs> there, you there you go. And, you know, he ends up talking to him and... Bresler during this time is like a hardcore drug addict. He's doing like daily regimen of like cocaine and quaaludes. And the way he describes it, I mean, you can tell that Horian really showed a lot of compassion and wisdom in the way that he just sort of gently guided Bresler to a healthier lifestyle, you know, through jujitsu and diet and everything else. And Bresler is clearly way better off because of his interactions with Horian and jujitsu, right? He was kind of a lost soul. So I don't know. Should, I mean, Bresler be super grateful? Should he be like feeling taken advantage of? I, I don't know. I'll let you read it and, you know. Yeah. Life is nuanced, right? Probably a little mixture of both. But but one thing the book does do is it highlights how incredibly central Horian was to the growth and spread of jujitsu in America and ultimately the world. Uh, You know, Horian, he left a comfortable life with his family in Brazil. Uh, He comes to America to grind and hustle and scrape to achieve this vision of BJJ taking over the world. He's teaching privates around the clock. Uh, He's taken on all comers in all of these countless Gracie challenge matches in a garage. He's visiting martial arts schools. There's hilarious stories of him going to these martial arts schools and like basically challenging, you know, the instructors in front of the students. He's unquestionably one of the most important people in the history of jujitsu. But it's interesting, even though he's always accused of crafting this like origin myth or marketing story where his like his father, you know, Helio is like the central figure. He really never puts much about his own role in there, you know? Um, even now that the Torrance Academy has gone to like Henner and Hiran, uh, you don't hear much about Horian. You don't hear much about the role that he played. It's all about Elio. Uh, so ironically, Horian kind of ends up a lot like Carlson in that he really doesn't get the credit he deserves, you know, establishing jujitsu in America, creating the UFC, popularizing this origin myth that became such a selling point and creating a template for so many other instructors. You know, would anyone outside of Brazil care about Brazilian jiu-jitsu at all, if not for Horian? I mean, would any of us be doing it? Right, I don't think so. Right. Yeah. Do you think it's maybe a better, keeping some of that mysticism element, like is it a better sell if, yes, our grandmaster off in Brazil, you know what I'm saying? Like, no, it's yeah. not me. Yeah. I'm trying to sell you this because yeah. it just kind of looks sort of shady when it's like I am the master and I'm going to create this thing. 
I think it's so. maybe a better pitch, I guess. I think so. You know, because it's like when you see your mystic teacher from the mountaintop, you know, jujitsu mm-hmm. instructor, and then he like gets in a Chrysler to drive away. There's just something that like brings it down to earth, right? You know, yeah. where it's like if it's this mythical story and you can imagine this sickly boy sitting on the edge of the mat watching Maeda or yeah. whatever. I mean, you know, yeah, for sure. For sure. For, yeah, you can't have a grandmaster walking in smelling like White Castle and then talking about the greatness he's going to bestow upon you. Bow to your sensei. Even, yeah, right. <laughs> even if it's right, yeah. it still is a weird sell. You yeah. Know, and, that, and again, he's something of a marketing genius, it seems like. so. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think everyone in jiu-jitsu does owe Horian just this incredible debt, including his family, right? Would any of them have jobs uh, and, and the wealth that they've come into, you know, the fame? But nevertheless, he is not the most popular person in his family. And when you read these accounts, whether it be Bresler's or other accounts, the sense I get is that Horian kind of expected like his brothers and other family members to like pay their dues in America. Um, you know, like you're going to come here. Hey, you're going to run a garage. You're going to give me half the money or whatever. Um, but thanks to Carlson, there was this renewed interest at this time in jujitsu in Brazil. So like Hickson, for example, around this time was on the front page of like every paper in Brazil you know, because he was rematching Zulu in front of a crowd of 20,000 people. So, I mean, these guys would kind of made it, you know, and they felt like they had paid their dues already while in Brazil. Now they're over here and, and, and you know, Horian, who clearly, you know, was not the fighter that like Hickson was, but he's the guy, right? He's the guy who got established. And so he's given the orders and he's doling out the money. And I think people did not like this, right? So ultimately... Hickson and, and, and Hoyler, they're teaching privates out of garages and they're getting paid like a semi-living wage trying to support their families. So eventually they all break away, you know, and they go do their own thing. Uh, and they took a lot of their own individual students with them. And each brother kind of insisted like, oh, you got to be loyal to one gym. You can't train at different places. And I think that's kind of where some of that comes from in the mm-hmm. culture. You know, the, the whole Crianche thing. You mm-hmm. know? But man, it was a matter of business and survival for them at the time. Oh, yeah. Like, if you go over there and you decide to just keep going over there, I've just lost money and I ain't making a lot of money anyhow. Yeah. Yeah. So you get it. Well, and, you know, I think that was kind of the point I made in the in the first podcast, too, that, like, if you're Jigoro Kano and you come from a really wealthy family, like, you've kind of got the luxury of being able to, like, have these higher principles and, like, oh, you know, we're, we're changing the world through this, you know, model of physical education or whatever, making better people. But, you know, if, if you're you know, working at White Castle and teaching on a dirty mat in your garage or whatever, like, yeah, this stuff matters. Like, you've got to make money. You've got to support your family. You have a wife. You have children, right? So I think we've got to offer some grace to all of these individuals in these stories, you know? Um, like, yeah, I think we need to acknowledge the real history and people like Oscar Santa Maria and the weirdness of the original Gracie brothers. Like, you can be an amazing person and still be kind of strange, right? You can have a huge impact on the world and still be a bit of an odd duck, right? And unless we acknowledge the actual reality of what happened, the true history, I mean, I think we're doing a disservice ultimately to all of these people, you know? I mean, Carlos and Helio were certainly incredibly important. Just the stubbornness and refusing to be absorbed by judo, creating the conditions uh, for jujitsu to emerge into this unique art with a distinct identity, right? I mean, it was enormous, right? But we can't leave these other people out. We can't buy into this marketing story and forget like Carlson Gracie. He's largely responsible for evolving this original Gracie version of jiu-jitsu into the art we know today. The group class format, the focus on training against skilled people uh, as opposed to just self-defense, 
um, the unique culture we see in jiu-jitsu that makes it so fun and addictive. I mean, so much of that is about Carlson. Hall's also played an important role, right? He demonstrated the benefits of borrowing from other arts. He was committed to you know, constant competition, just like Carlson was. And then finally, Horian, right? I mean, he diligently pursued this dream of spreading Brazilian jiu-jitsu to the whole world in an effort that was ultimately successful. So, I mean, the history of jiu-jitsu, there are names other than Carlos and Helio that deserve to be remembered. And their contribution should be understood, should be recognized. I think we, we owe them that, you know? I mean, all these people we're talking about, we owe them a debt. They created something that we love and that has enriched our lives and is, you know, uh, benefit for us or our, you know, like our kids, my kids train, you know? I mean, uh, so I think we owe it to them to, to learn about the history, to remember what they did and what their contributions were. You know, that's some incredible people. Who's next? Who's next? Yeah. What's the next layer of the history of jujitsu? Hmm. And so, I'm not, I know you're Mr. Facts. You're yeah, Mr. Yeah, yeah. Nerd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying spitball a little bit. Yeah. The, and I don't mean like necessarily the right now guys. Yeah. Because history is created after the fact, right? Yeah, yeah. So who's next? You know, I, I, I hate to punt on this. Mm-hmm. But I feel like I would go back to that that concept of like historical distance. Like I feel like it's just impossible to predict. I mean, you can see some of these trends. Yep. Like for a while, uh, it seemed like the sort of like no gi submission only stuff, you know, was going to be the wave of the future, and maybe somehow that would take it uh, to the next level of viewership, you know. And you've got guys like Gordon Ryan where it seems like there's really some like pro wrestling elements that mm-hmm. are coming into play the same way they did in MMA and the yep. UFC yeah, where everybody's like cutting a promo yep. and definitely. I'm intentionally being the heel or the bad guy or whatever, you know? Right. Um, but I don't know that I'm buying the idea, like I was saying earlier, that no matter what we do or how much we pro wrestling it up is like jujitsu or submission grappling, is that ever really going to turn into, uh, you know, like uh, the next big thing in terms yeah. of pop culture? So I don't know, like, will there be a next in the sense of like, will there ever be somebody that we would say deserves to be up with those like six names I gave earlier as like Mm -hmm. the most important people or, you know, I I think I would, I would analogize it this way. Mm -hmm. There's four faces on almost said Mount Everest per per the joke from last time, but there's still a lot of well-revered presidents, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So there's that just the monument the gesture of it yeah but then there's a lot of other important history and then like seriously notable names that aren't up there yeah so i mean you don't replace yeah those key four let's say just yeah. speaking totally as an analogy but you do add the key names yeah uh, on, the, on the timeline as it goes on well i mean uh as far as like like I, maybe I should ask you for some examples to like, so I'm not misunderstanding your question. I, like, I guess maybe what I'm thinking is, is it, is it the, the people now who, um, sort of revolutionize mm-hmm. or capitalize on and market specific techniques mm-hmm. like a, like Keenan, mm-hmm. Keenan Cornelius mm-hmm. and the worm garden, all this sort of stuff. Is that strong enough of an inflection point for him to be a significant figure oh. other than he won a few tournaments for a few years and went open to school like everybody else does. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like, how do we talk about the next layer of the history and who are the key figures? Because yeah. it was it was the original, the origin people, yeah, the people who expanded it and grew it and broke the tradition, yeah, you know, and the, the people who marketed it and sold it big, and here we are, yeah. What's next? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, 
because from that perspective, because you could talk about like, oh, I think like, you know, I don't know, like for my money, Roger Gracie is the greatest of all time, you know, like, so if we're just talking about greatest fighter, yeah. uh, you know, should he be there? Or a lot of people would say, uh, you know, like Gordon Ryan is perhaps the best ever in Nogi, mm-hmm. you know, um, as far as like innovation though, kind of more like you're talking about, I like, will we look back at like Dean Lister yeah. and say, oh, this guy really brought attention to the leg lock game. Or will we look at John Danaher and say, you know, he took a different teaching approach and he really emphasized developing these systems for areas that were underdeveloped, like leg locks, mm-hmm. uh, that could then dominate people because it was like an arms race and they hadn't caught up yet. Mm-hmm. So will some of these names stick out for their like technical innovation? I don't know. I don't know. I mean And then a second question is there's gonna be the mainstream talking points like we're going through here today. Yeah, yeah. And then all these other little details and you know, like I could see like 10 years from now, 20 years from now, somebody's recording a podcast and they're like, yeah, Danaher developed these systems, but yeah. this Dean Lister guy, yeah. let me tell you about him. Yeah. Now that'll never happen because he got reference on Rogan and the clip <laughs> goes viral every couple months, it seems like. But you know what I'm saying? There's going to be a new history told yeah. and then that hidden history with these other details and these other names that weren't part of the the big marketing ploy. Yeah. It's it, it's an interesting question just because it's so gigantic yeah. and it's so visible. Yeah, it's literally everywhere: social media, videos, all this stuff. Like, so it it it'd be interesting to see who survives the marketing race. Sure, more than anything. Yeah, you know, it's not it's not always the best and the most important that get remembered. It seems like. Yeah, you know, it's, it's who was marketed well. Yeah, per this story. I mean, I guess it's it's hard for me to picture somebody from our time or going forward that would have played a role big enough yeah. in the development or evolution of the art or it's popularizing that they would deserve to be, you know, in the company of these like six individuals sure. we were talking about yeah. earlier. But, you know, it's a fool's errand to like try to mm-hmm. predict things mm-hmm. like this, right? Course, I mean, it's yeah. like, who knows? That's why I asked you to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Just see if you take the bait. <laughs> nice, nice. But I mean, certainly I don't, I mean, like I mentioned a few names that I think have gotten a lot of uh, you know, uh, a lot of heat right. uh, in, in, in recent years, but I, I can't imagine that any of them that we're going to someday talk about like John Danaher, the way we talk about you know Carlos Gracie or something like that. I, I can't imagine that would be the case, but who knows what'll happen. Yeah. Thanks everyone for tuning into another episode of the Pohada Podcast. And hey, if you're a regular listener, head on over to the Pohada Podcast on Instagram, where amongst the ridiculous memes, you'll find a link to the merch shop and be able to keep up with the disorganized going-ons of the show. And hey, before you go, here's a little preview of an upcoming episode. They sent me to the Mayo Clinic to get checked out. And then, you know, they checked me out and I had to stay there for like however many hours to make sure I was okay. And the worst part about it is I think I only got hit two or three times. You know, I mean, I probably hit the guy 50 times. You know what I mean? I hit him a lot, like it was pretty one-sided, yeah. and uh, so it was kind of a bummer. But I get it, yeah, and, and I didn't know, I, you know. I was like, "Well, I don't know. I don't think I have a concussion." I don't, and then my buddy that was with me, he's like, "I don't think you ever got hit, you know." Yeah. And I did, but it wasn't a lot. Kalube Carlson Gracie de Jiu Jitsu on Hua Figueroa da Magalhães.